0: holiday because you're married to me not like a ballroom a small room a hall room where i can smoke my pipe away well with your wee head upon my knee
1: well richard i hope you like that song i had you in mind when i found it and i was very glad i thought it was a sign that was blue room by bing crosby and buddy bregman it's from the 1956 album, Bing Sings Whilst Bregman Swings, and that's available on Apple Music.
2: I know there's always a little controversy around Bing Crosby because of the controversial past. I, for one, have no problem listening to Bing's music. For me, that's just, that's my go-to play. If we offended anyone with that song, I don't think we did, but if we did, you know, I think you need to go with the music, and not the man behind the music. Yeah, movie. and
1: just to be clear, that is why it reminded me of you, and I knew you would like it. the music, not the controversial part.
2: <laughs> exactly. So i I love a good I love a good tune by uh, Bingle, So good choice, sir. Yeah,
1: playing the Blue Room by Bing Crosby, because one of our movies on the show today. Do you want to tell people what movies are, and and then we'll tell them what the show is. They don't need to know the show yet. Let's tell them what's going to be on it.
2: Okay, <laughs> so we're celebrating the films of Lionel Atwill. You know, when you think... Speaking of controversy. Exactly, sorry. exactly. We'll, we'll fill you in on that. I didn't know about that, honestly, until I started doing a little research. You, you, when we think of classic horror film stars, I mean, you obviously go to Karloff Lugosi and Chaney, But then there's a few other names that, that popped up oftentimes either in supporting roles or in lead roles in lesser films, George Zuko is one who often popped up, in Lionel Atwill. And he was definitely a mad scientist in most of his films. And we've covered several of them here before with Dr. X and, and Mystery of the Wax Museum. March 1st, 1885 is when he was born. It's March, so I figured what a perfect time to celebrate Lionel Atwill with three of his films. We're going to be going from a couple of his early films, Murders in the Zoo and Secret of the Blue Room, both from 1933. He was very busy in the early 1930s. And then we're going to jump ahead to 1942, which was kind of the beginning of the end for his, I would say, mainstream film career with The Mad Doctor of Market Street. And these are three films that, for a long time, they were hard to find, especially Secret of the Blue Room, because... Uh, as we, when we get into these films, I mean, it wasn't released on VHS. In fact, neither was Mad Doctor. You had to go kind of the black market. Murders of the Zoo, Murders in the Zoo, did get a VHS release, but then it didn't get a DVD release for a long time. I think it's fun. We're covering three films that don't get talked a lot about, uh, and a star that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think. Anyone's ever done a show on Lionel Atwell. We're going to go ahead and brave new territory.
1: I think that's a great idea. So this is the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Welcome to our monthly meeting. Let's call it to order. Let's start out with some old business. In that, we include the roll call of new members. Very short list this time. We don't have any new members. That's sad. However, I noticed when I was checking, Richard, we have 98 members that's pretty now impressive. I don't I don't want steam to come out of your ears and you have to think too hard but you know how many is that from a hundred
2: well that would be two yes so <laughs> we
1: just need two more people and we'll be at hundred and I think that's cause for a celebration so do we have anything we can get a give away for our hundredth
2: person or anything I, I I don't I don't know uh you know I will I think we could certainly first off enter uh, issue a challenge right to All the listeners out there, if you're listening to this podcast and you know someone who might enjoy what what, uh, we have to offer, then, uh, you know, send them a link. Throw them our way on Facebook. Whatever the case may be, let them know where they can tune in and listen. And maybe we can get to that magical 100 number. And you know what? We should do something. We,
1: I, well, I have a Hellboy Funko Pop that I can't seem to give away to anybody. <laughs> I don't know if that's enough. And what if we? What if we got him a T-shirt? Uh, one of our T-shirts off the. Yeah, that's that'd be a good idea. Okay. Yeah, T-shirt for the hundredth person that joins our. Which is Facebook. something we don't
2: talk about enough. Uh, that we do have know. a. You We're know. so
1: bad at self-promotion. We, we I are. are.
2: Well, and I, I, if I remember, I say we need to promote this. So you know, we have T-shirts. Everyone's got T-shirts. You know, T public. That's what we went with, right? Yes. Tea Public, yeah, because yep. we were going to go with the other one. We went with T Public. Absolutely, go uh, go out there and, and introduce your friends to the podcast. The magical 100 number, we'll get a, a free T-shirt. And I know that we're we talked a little bit this last month. We're closing in on some magic numbers as well as far as downloads. You know, we've got 98 members on Facebook, and we know that we've got more members than that that are are people that are listening to the show because we're looking at the numbers. And as far as the downloads, because we're now, you know, we just celebrated our our third anniversary. I don't want to, you know, I guess we don't want to promote it too much right now, but it's, we're closing in on a magic number. well, heck, we're at episode
1: 41. I didn't even say that. We usually (laughs) say that. I'm weird about that type of thing. I mean, it's sort of like finances, like, is that private information? I don't really want, well, first of all, I don't even know what a good number is. One is a good number for me. I've always said if one person listens... No it is helpful. a goal for me. I want to get more familiar, and uh, Steve Turek has made some recommendations. Bill Mize has take made some recommendations of how we can aggregate that data and determine really how many listeners we have. So I, I think your point was getting to, and my point is, we might have some more landmark numbers that we could be introducing in future episodes and some goals to set once we know. And then always when you reach a goal, you celebrate.
2: I think so. That's. I guess that was the, the gist uh, of that. When we started this, I think, you know, much like when I started my blog, I think you did too. You know what? One person reads it, I'm happy. I I don't sit there and look at my blog numbers because I really don't care. I do it because I'm wanting to do it. I know that people are reading it. And I'm not looking to have tens of thousands of people reading my blog. I've never looked at this as I'm going to make a career of doing this. I I want it to be fun. I never want it to be an obligation. I want it to be fun. And if I was making this a career I think it would turn into an obligation and I, I wouldn't want to do that I would be obsessed with numbers and downloads because that means money and that's how I pay the mortgage I'd never want to do that this is for fun you know that's why I look at those numbers like wow we're, we're getting some some good numbers on that we've getting some people who are downloading these episodes some we're doing something right that's where I was going with that I was surprised I was like well you know we've been doing it for a while I know we had a bump post-Monster Bash last year, so putting those little postcards out there amongst our tribe, you know, we got the word out to people who might not have known about our show. And uh, I think that we keep a good balance between old films and still old films. They're still 50 years old, but it's movies in the 70s are still recent and more recent, and they're in a time that that isn't necessarily... Classic universal horrors or classic hammers. I think we keep a good balance, and I think we can find something for everybody out there. So I was excited at that and thinking, you know, we should kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what, let's, let's toot our own horn, and we're having fun with this, and apparently other people are too, so...
1: Well, then, Richard,
2: congratulations. Good job. <laughs> congratulations to you, sir. Now so, that we're done, yes. you know, the Mutual uh, Appreciation uh, Society. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, that the Facebook group page is The Classic Horrors Club Podcast on Facebook, and if you want to accompany that with a voicemail feedback or an email or something our email address is classichorse.club at gmail.com we have a voicemail line and when you if you should call you might have to blow the cobwebs off it we haven't gotten a call in a while but it is 616-649-2582 that's 616-649-club <laughs> very good very good And if you notice uh, the past few episodes, we've kind of been going through a spiel like that about not having any voicemail. But when they come in, they sometimes come in between recordings and I'll stick them in at the last minute without any fanfare or any comments. So I do want to acknowledge that in the last episode, we got a voicemail from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It was very nice. Thank you, Chris, for sending that voicemail. And uh, don't let our recording deter you from calling and giving us a voicemail. We really appreciate
2: it. Yeah, our, because our schedule is such now that, like, for example, we're recording this about a month in advance simply because we're no longer in the same location, but we are roughly once a month, so that's what we're trying to take advantage of that. may not always be that way, but for now that's kind of what we're doing. We definitely want to hear from people, so as I think I said last time, I don't care if you comment on something we did six months ago. I always feel weird calling in shows and leaving a voicemail, but... I shouldn't because I want people to call in as well. So
1: yeah. And speaking of feedback, do we want to comment on some particular feedback we had from the Count Yorga episode?
2: The, yes, and this was a, a discussion that popped up on uh, on Facebook. It was pertaining, I guess, the thought that that uh, some people thought that we didn't like the Count Yorga films because we kind of we we didn't really hype them up, I guess, as much as maybe. A lot of other people do. We didn't love them as much maybe as some other people did. And so then that kind of just led to a few other people saying, well, why did you review movies that you didn't enjoy listening to? Or watching. Or watching. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Here's our thoughts on this. When we select the films that we're doing, sometimes they're films that we have both seen before and we love and we want to talk about. Um, Sometimes they are first-time viewings for both. Sometimes for one of us. We're never going to, to pick movies that we know we didn't like going into it. Because why would we do that? We Unless
1: we want to make fun of them. And I don't think that's you or I. I we don't do that. I mean, that's,
2: I don't want to make... I mean, we may off-air make a comment about that was a horrible movie... And I will certainly always say films like The Lost Mesa Women and and uh, I forget the other one with John Carradine, the Underworld movie. I don't know. Petrified I, World. Petrified World, thank you. See, those I didn't enjoy, you know. But I also acknowledge that somebody else out there does. I know people. some people do like the Mesa movies. Not for me. But we're never going to intentionally pick something we don't like. We also don't want to sugarcoat our opinions. If we, you know, we don't want to bash a movie. I don't think we did that with Yorga. We just didn't love it as much as as other films. And so we just gave our opinion. But I don't think we intentionally bashed it, raked it over the coals, because that's not either of our style to do that. I don't even like listening to reviews that are like that. Keep that in mind. If, if, if there's a particular film that you really enjoyed, but... Maybe we didn't. You know, we didn't intentionally go in with the thought, we're going to bash this movie. I think the Fey episode's a prime example. You know, Nicholas Hatcher had given us the suggestion on, on Fay Ray. We watched a bunch of Fey Ray movies. We're not as big uh, fans of Fey as as he is. We enjoyed them, some more than others, but not to the level that he did. And I think that, you know, while he was a little disappointed we didn't love him as much, I think he also respected the fact that we had a conversation about it. He disagreed with us on a couple of points, and that's absolutely perfect. We're open for that. If we have an opinion that doesn't jive with yours, then, you know, say, Hey, well, I disagree with you on this point. We encourage that conversation, both on Facebook or in voicemails, what have you. I think, just keep that in mind. I We, we love doing these movies, and we're always... We're gonna pick things sometimes that, that for example, the the hack exploitation holiday was something you wanted to do. I'm not as big a fan of those films as you are, but I I think I enjoyed them to varying degrees depending on the film. Much like I know that I probably enjoyed the Doctor Who month more than you did, but we open up the doors to to experience new things, and you never know. You know, sometimes we're gonna try some stuff. Sometimes we go in these and we know exactly what we're getting. This month. I had seen all three of these films
1: and no i had not i had only seen one
2: i knew that mad doctor and and secret of the blue room weren't go-to films for me that said secret of the blue room i actually came out of that loving that a whole lot more than the first time i watched it and mad doctor i kind of got the same impression of as the first time and i've seen murders of the zoo several times I knew what I was getting there and I enjoy that one
1: and I just want to say that the thing about it that got me was the impression that we were negative because that was not an intention I don't want to be negative I don't know maybe it was good that someone called us out if that's you know I don't think we intend to be negative about anything
2: no and so if we came across negative in that one and I don't think that we did but if we did or someone thought we did yeah, please understand. That's that's not the type of show that we are. We don't want to be, we don't want to be those guys that rush out to see a movie on opening night and then rush back home and get on Facebook and say this was the worst piece of of, of you know blankety blank that I've ever seen. And back in my day, the mm. movies were. I mean, I don't want to be that. I, if it's a you know, I may love a type of films, and then I'm going to reach a point where. I don't want to watch them anymore. I'll totally own it. I've seen all the Fast and Furious films. I really don't have a desire to see the next one. My tastes have changed, and the last one kind of lost it for me, and you know, I'll own it. I saw those, but I've kind of given up on that franchise, so but you know, I know it's probably going to make gazillion dollars an opening weekend, and uh, it'll do well, but you know, that's I just, you know, your tastes change, and uh, I think that we don't ever want to be those guys. So I know when
1: I have not liked a movie as much as you have, there is always something you say about it that makes me appreciate it a little more. I, and I think that's the purpose of conversations like this: is you know, what do you appreciate about something, bringing casting a new light on it that you may not have cast yourself. So if you all do disagree, let's have a, a nice conversation. Convi- tell us why, you know, what is it about it that you like and you love. We will never what are they calling it now well no shame you for that i mean that's
2: no yeah, yeah
1: it's so yeah. subjective and it's just the opinion and we've we say every month there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure i mean no let's move on i don't, i don't want to harp on that nope, too much nope. but i
2: just we wanted to talk yeah about it, and, and so i guess
1: if we i just want to say i apologize if we were negative we didn't perceive it that way and i hope you all didn't either well, I want to tell you about one other thing.
2: Oh yes, all yes. Business.
1: I'm sorry. Uh, so I live in Minneapolis now, and they have an Alamo Draft House, and it's oddly different than the one here in Kansas City.
2: I think they're all they have their own little flair to them. Yeah. And and I liked what 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 you showed me. So yeah,
1: I don't know uh, if it's just because it was new and exciting for me, if there or if there was a different vibe. But I went on a Friday night. And I know they have Film Club here in Kansas City. Well, this was Film Club. I got a little book, sort of a little passport. And if you go to a film club screening, you get a stamp. And that was really cool. And then the page, it has a place for you to write your notes, like the date you saw it and what was your initial impression. Really cool. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. You know, I want to watch. But the movie I saw was called Blood and Flesh, The Real Life, R-E-E-L, and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson. And I just wanted to kind of share that. Uh, I... Don't think it's got a wide release. This was a one-night screening at Alamo. They did a Skype conversation with the director, David Gregory, afterwards. David Gregory is the man that made the really good Doctor Moreau documentary, Lost Soul. The oh
2: yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah,
1: that was really fun. Uh, but Al Adamson is a director. I knew him best for uh, Dracula meets Frankenstein, or
2: what is it? Dracula versus versus Frankenstein. Frankenstein.
1: Yeah, a movie that I have tended to not care for over the years, but it was interesting, the scenes they showed from that in the documentary. I was like, huh, it really made me want to see it again.
2: It's, Uh, you know, that's a film that, a few more viewings every time you appreciate just a little bit more. It's never going to be a great film. It has measures of fun to it.
1: Yeah. So this documentary was, in some ways, very standard documentary. When they do one on a filmmaker, it takes you through their filmography and all that. His... Life, though, ended in a bizarre twist. Lionel Atwell's was not as extreme, but similar. Towards the end of his career, he was involved in a, well, I guess you can't say scandal. He he was murdered, buried in his basement and under concrete. The weirdness of his movies, and there were a bunch of them. Dracula vs. Frankenstein is just one of them, probably the most well-known. But, you know, then sort of turns into this real-life horror story. And so it's a very interesting documentary. I recommend it. Uh, for anyone that's... And his films would fall into the late part of the classic horror uh, time frame that we've set up. So just want to share that experience. The theater had a a bunch of old classic horror and sci-fi movie posters. They were huge. I think they were legit. I don't think they were reproductions. And I don't know where those posters would have originally been displayed because, I mean, they were bigger than a normal one sheet and some of them were like, you know, wide... I don't know, but it, it was a fun place. Uh, I recommend it. I'm going to try film club again. And,
2: uh, how far uh, is this from, is this in the downtown area? No,
1: I it's wish not. that's the only thing about it. It's probably, it took about 25 minutes to get there. It would be like when I lived here going from my place to like Olathe to yeah. see a movie.
2: So, so you so. actually have to get in your car for this? Yes, so I downtown. do. I do. How's but the,
1: and when I got in the car to go and maybe that helped to the experience, so that's the first time I've been in my car since the holidays. So wow. <laughs> um, it was it was fun to get in my car. I was really, I, you know, worried about driving. Like, can I still do it? And you know, what would it feel like? But you know, those weeks of going without the car are uh, compensated for when I get in the car and drive eleven hours to go to Oklahoma. You make up or, for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's true. So it kind of yeah. washes in the
2: end. That's, that would be kind of cool though if it was downtown because that would be yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'd have be a there nice all the time. Like Alamo, that's just two blocks away. I mean. Yeah, when you find a good neighborhood theater, you get spoiled by it. Um, I personally, I, I do love Alamo Drafthouse here in Kansas City. concept of the waiters and waitresses constantly going back and forth sometimes, which I know they try to downplay, but that annoys me a little bit. You know, I do kind of enjoy just getting into the film, and when you hit that climax and here comes the waitress coming along, it it's a l- throws me a little bit, but... For me, it's like, I love the B&B theater we have here. It's not within walking distance, really, but it's just really five minutes from the house, and it's nice to have that that neighborhood theater. But at least twenty five's not, not, no, not that No, it's not bad. bad. And
1: when it's not, you know, if the weather's good, it's no problem to go. I, and I'm sorry, I do want to add to that when you mentioned the waiters, that reminded me. So the, the waitress came and was asking, had I ever been there, and was telling me how it works and all that. And she goes, are you staying for both movies? And I said, what? What's the second movie? And she said, well, we don't know. It's a surprise. Uh, I did not stay because, you know, it was close to my bedtime.
0: Uh, and
1: that's really sad because this movie started at six thirty. But uh, anyway, um, I know I still don't know to this day what it was, but it was going to be an Al Adamson movie. One of his movies, there was a
2: how could you not stay? I just, the first five minutes? I
1: know I just well, because then I was afraid I'd stay for the whole thing, you know, I mean, and I had a I had a big day the next day. We'll talk about it at the end when we ask what's going on with each other. All right. So, all right. Well, we better talk about these movies. Well, we're going to do things a little different. We're going to go ahead and start the, the uh, main presentation of our meeting uh, with a discussion of Lionel Atwell. And we'll take our breaks when we get in his biography to the points where uh, the movies we're going to talk about were made. I am using as my resource a book called Lionel Atwell, the Exquisite Villain. This is by Neil Pettigrew and it is available from Midnight Marquee Press. Great book.
2: Great cover. Very vibrant colors.
1: I'm going to say intensely researched because to have written this book, I think you must have gone to as many libraries as you can, scanned as many old newspapers for reviews. This goes through almost every month of his life and what play was he in at the time, what radio shows was he doing, what movies, his... If anything, there's not a lot about his personal life. I I mean, there would be later. This is one of those books where about half of it is biography and the other half is, you know, an examination of movies. I'll never forget how excited I was to get a book about Glenda Farrell. And, you know, it had like a two-page biography and then it was just an examination of the movies. I was really disappointed that we didn't. This is much uh, more thorough than that. And so anyway, that's where I'm getting my information Uh, That I'll share and I'm going to just start out and talk a little bit about his past and if you've got any other notes Richard please be sure to throw them in Lionel Atwill was, it's really interesting, he was not born into a particularly wealthy, well to do family his father Alfred was a clerk at the Board of Education who had met his wife Ada in town their son Lionel was born March 1st 1885 he was the first of three sons the younger brothers all... Well, I'm sorry. There were three after him. There were four sons altogether. They all went into insurance, so, you know, no show business at all. Born in South Norwood in the borough of Croydon. Uh, it's over in England on March 1st, 1885. I say it's kind of interesting that he wasn't born into a well-to-do family because I'll soon be telling you how wealthy Lionel Atwell became. And the one thing I really learned about him in summary is... How much stage and theater he did. I didn't really realize that. And this would have been at the time of silent films. And he experimented a little bit in silent films. But really, you know, was in London. Made a big trip to the United States. Spent several years in in New York on Broadway. And then went to California and really started big in the movies. His first stage role was in September 1905. Uh, He played just a footman in a play called The Walls of Jericho. Over his career, he wrote, directed, and produced plays as well as just acting in them. He married an actress named Phyllis Adelphi in 1913 and had a son that was born a year later in June of 1914. Uh, at this time, he was already a well-regarded actor and he had already started living like royalty. It was in October of of 1915 that he sailed for the U.S. Back then, you had to take a boat to go Across the water to the country, and actually his first experience in the United States was a flop. It was a play he had done in London that was success and it success, and it just didn 't quite translate um, over here in the United States, so he did some vaudeville he actually did a comedy show called The Lodger and then, yes this is based on the Jack the Ripper The Lodger but wow. it was a comedy version because you know that subject matter is hilarious I was going <laughs> to
2: say it. wow okay
1: he did a lot of volunteer work he was always donating his time and performing shows for different charities and as we would get into World War I uh, a lot of those would, you know would be related to the war he actually volunteered for service uh, like his three brothers did but at that time he was now 32 and that was too old for him to actually go to service. One of his plays, Eve's daughter, Paramount, wanted to make the movie, and they did. He was in it, it was his first movie, but it did not make much of an impression. So he didn't really get his film career started then. He went back to doing theater, uh, had the first so-called scandal of his life, I guess. In 1918, he became interested in one of his co-stars, L.C. McKay. His wife, Phyllis, who I mentioned earlier, actually left for a year and then filed for divorce in October of 1918. So then he was able to marry Elsie. He did that while he was in Chicago in February of 29. And he partnered with a theatrical producer called David Belasco to do a play called Deborah D-E-B-U-R-A-U, and there's a whole chapter in the book to vote, devoted to this. This was apparently Lionel Atwell's triumph. So none of his movies, um, although, you know, that Murders in the Zoo, that's pretty much a triumph in my book. <laughs> no. Anyway, yo, there's a whole chapter devoted to it. This really is what made him a star. And so, like I said, this theatrical career that I wasn't even that familiar of, that's really where Lionel Atwell came from. In 1919, he had only made his fourth movie. Interesting. I, I mean, you gave a face when I said the name of that play as not really being familiar with it. And the book notes, it is relatively forgotten today. No one is aware of this play that made him such a star.
2: Well, back then, uh, there was so many plays, right? Because films were still, uh, I wouldn't say in their infancy, but people went to, to stage plays quite a bit more. You're not talking just Broadway or what have you. I mean... Keeping in mind, there wasn't even really... I mean, there was radio, but there wasn't radio dramas yet. Certainly decades before television. So people, when they wanted to be entertained, they went out to the theater. Now, they went to see films, but they also went to see stage plays. And that I think stage play is much more common back then. We still have them now, but they're dinner theaters. And, and a lot of times people don't go until, like, it's around the holidays or something to see a holiday show. You know, I know that there's there's theatrical stuff even here in kansas city but i'm not sure that you could keep yourself busy seeing every single play that comes to kansas city and and yes you could probably you know go to new york and there's probably a lot more off broadway plays but those are isolated you hear you hear of so many plays back then and it's like i never heard of it never heard of it never heard of it it's no different than somebody who's never listened to old time radio is like, Well have you heard of Firm and Molly? Well no. Have you heard of Suspense? No. Yours truly Johnny Dollar? No. You know what you know and, and this there's a medium that, you know, you might not be familiar with. I wasn't surprised. I did know he he was very prolific theatrically. I, I saw a number he did a total of twenty five different Broadway plays between 1917 and 1931. Uh, and that's Broadway plays. So, and you know he had to do some off-Broadway, too. Anyway. Oh,
1: yeah. He traveled all over the mostly the East Coast, but, I mean, I yeah. mentioned Chicago doing... After the big play, you know, next attempt to make a movie, a silent film, The Lover of Camille, and that was a big flop. Still no movie career for Lionel Atwill. In 1925, he had a very strange year. He almost died in a train accident. In fact, the the person in front of him was killed. I mean, he was like inches away from being killed in a train crash. Also, he caught his wife, Elsie, cheating on him. So he filed for divorce this time because of her cheating. I guess she got no alimony
2: from him. This would be his second wife? Yes. Okay. But
1: very quickly in 1927, he met Louise Cromwell. They both lived in the same apartment building and they would eventually become married.
2: Now, I do know about Louise Cromwell because her full name was Henrietta Louise Cromwell Brooke MacArthur. She was the ex-wife of Douglas MacArthur. I did not catch that. Yeah, she's she's the ex-wife of of the legendary uh, Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur. I don't know how long they were married. I I, I get the gist that it maybe wasn't a long marriage, but uh, I think she was married a lot longer to Lionel Atwell. It was his longest of his of his four marriages, so I think he was married to her for 13 years, I believe.
1: And ironically, he had started seeing her while he was still married to Elsie, yet him catching Elsie cheating spawned the divorce and uh, her getting no alimony. Yeah,
2: that's double standards going yes, on there. Yes.
1: In October of 1931, a play he was in, Silent Witness, moved to the West Coast, Fox bought the rights and wanted to make the movie starring Lionel Atwell, and he decided to give him one more chance. And this time, finally, movies caught on. And probably in particular once he started playing his uh, sinister characters. In uh, 1932, Dr. X was released that was his first one and then he started doing more and more horror you know we've talked before about the perception of horror movies over the years but you know at different time periods in an interview that's quoted in this book people asked him why was he going into horror movies after such a prestigious career especially in the theater and he flat out said he was tired of art as long as they were going to pay him well he would be in these movies so here he is, 46 years old, he makes Murders in the Zoo, released March 31st, 1933, and the money that they paid him, again, he w- was a very wealthy actor. Uh, I think after we talk about the movies, I've got a quote I actually want to read from the book that talks about his lifestyle, but he had homes in different places and had wild, well, shouldn't say wild at this point, but he had lavish parties could basically do anything he he wanted. So that's the setup. That's where we are when he makes Murders in the Zoo. Anything up to this point you have to add?
2: Uh, I really don't. You, you've got a ton of great information there. I mean, 1933 was a very prolific year for him. He did eight films that year, and several of which we've talked about on the show, like, um, you know, uh, The Vampire's Bat. I believe we talked about that one. And the... Uh, Fay Ray was in that one, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mystery of the Wax Museum, another Fay Ray film. A uh, movie called The Sphinx. Which have I, you seen that? I, you know, I used to have it, and I don't have it anymore. I, there's a spot for it in the binder, so I don't know what happened to I it. I want to see that. It's on YouTube. As it is, thinking. it's public domain. You can find it. I remember. I think my copy was uh, from Alpha Video. That is actually one I'm going to be watching. We'll talk why I'm watching that. But yes, uh, I remember it not being that bad, actually. Hmm. You know, I think for public domain films, look, you get them for free. Uh, if you can even enjoy them marginally, I mean, it's already a win, right? You haven't spent any money on it. And I think that's where, you know, so he was very prolific, but 1933 was a vis- very busy year for him. And 2 that's why two of the other films were, you know, two of the first films we're going to be talking about come from that same year. Yeah. Starting off with Murders in the Zoo.
1: Yep. So let's take a little break, listen to the trailer and the plot synopsis, and then we'll come back and talk about it. It is, however, with the pulsing lump of gratitude in my throat that I wish to thank Mr. Eric Gorman for not only sponsoring this delicious and resplendent banquet but for bringing back from India with him some of the worst uh, some of the best most interesting animals in this wide universe to entertain and intrigue you
0: ah! Woodward! Yes. keep your punches everyone ah! Mr. Hewitt has fainted Dr. Woodward will take care of him Better get him out of here Doctor. yes uh, bring him doing? this way oh, I don't know really, yet dear right this way oh. please stay here and help keep the oh, others calm yeah.
2: Put him on that table.
0: He was holding his leg. That's swelling. That looks like a snake bite.
2: What do we have in any snakes with fangs as wide as that? Maybe it's a mamba bite. See if that mammals in his cage. If it is a mamba, that gets no good. I've seen a dozen cases like that in India. He was dead within five minutes. You mean there's a snake loose in there among all those people? Come and get everybody away from that table. I'll do what I can. There's no way to
0: toxin. There's nothing you can do for him. The member's gone. Its cage is open. I'll try to keep everyone quiet. Get out of there. Everybody, there's a the snake loose. Get away from that table. There's a poisonous snake under it. <laughs> Get it's a natural. Fred, grab some photographs. Where's their telephone? Come on, Freddy, let's go. Jim, let's grab a shot. Where's the telephone, Miss
2: Evans? Where's the phone? I'm on the morning record.
0: Please, don't you see that it'll spoil everything if this gets out? Everything. If it
1: gets
2: out, it's going to be a sensation.
0: Well, yeah, I'd just as soon not be so close to it.
2: Come on, let's find it. Hello. In what's been called possibly his best performance, Lionel Atwell plays Eric Gorman, a zoologist that returns from the Asian jungle with some new animals for the municipal zoo and an unhealthy jealousy of his wife. Suspicious of any man she encounters, Gorman takes extreme measures to keep her all for himself. Of the three films we're covering, this is the one that has been the easiest to find for the last 30 years, honestly. Murders in the Zoo, it was actually not a Universal film. It was a Paramount Pictures film, and it was one of the films that Paramount sold to Universal in 1958 for the Shock Theater Package. The Shock Theater Package, if by some chance you're not familiar with what that is, is the theater package in which, uh, and we're talking... Not movie theater, but it's a package of films that was sold to television stations. There was two. There was Shock Theater and then Son of Shock. And these two different film packages had basically every universal film horror and mystery from the 30s and 40s. I don't think they went into the 50s. If they did, it was very early 50s. There's a list of them. I've got a book right here called Universal Horrors. Uh, the studio's classic films, 1931-1946, by Tom Weaver, uh, Michael Brunis, and John Brunis. An amazing hardcover Bible for universal horrors. It's a, it's chock full of great information. And they've got the list of films. And the Shock Theater film package is what really kind of kick-started the television horror host. Television stations got all these films. They had to do something with them. They needed a host, to host the films. And that's where... Like Tom Leahy's uh, Nightmare show started in Wichita, and he created the character of the host. I do believe Vampira predated the Shock Theater package. I believe I can't remember I what year so. the Shock Theater package is what kickstarted it across the country because television stations—that's when they started coming up with their own hosts. Murders in the Zoo has always been out there. It was part of the Universal Horrors VHS collection in the day. It was towards the end of the releases, but it was available on, on VHS, it was available on uh, DVD. Now I remember correctly, it was one of the later ones released on DVD, I think, wasn't it in like, I I believe it was like the Universal Horrors Cult Collection or something, the one that came out from Turner Classic, and I think it was like the last box set that they did proper on DVD. It had a really crazy high sticker price at the time, but I remember in that set were some of the other films that hadn't surfaced on VHS, like the Mad Doctor of Market Street and the Strange Case of Doctor RX, another Atwell film. So, Murders in the Zoo was was kind of late, but at least it did get a DVD release. It is you know still readily available now. It's on Blu-ray in the Universal Horror Collection Volume Two. It is one of my personal favorites of Lionel Atwell. I mean, he's really at his best in this film as Eric Gorman. He's crazy. He's not a mad scientist, but he's mad. He he is definitely maniacal. But interestingly enough, he wasn't the top build in the film. Nope. Hm. Uh, that went to Charlie Ruggles. At this day and age, most people are going to say, who? Charlie Ruggles was a character actor. He was a comedian he headlined a handful of films, but he was normally not like a lead star. He wasn't a Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, W. C. Fields type lead, but he was he was well known. He did quite a few films, and he did a lot of work. Actually, as, as we go through these films, you're going to sense some themes with some of these stars and, and films that they did, and how they kind of worked together and. Charlie Ruggles did quite a few films with uh, W.C. Fields. He did uh, If I Had a Million, Alice in Wonderland, which W.C. Fields played Humpty Dumpty. That's Nightmare Fuel right there, if you've seen that one. A movie called Six of a Kind. Uh, The classic Bringing Up Baby with Cary Grant and Katharine Hepburn. A Christmas movie that maybe some of you saw, you know, in the last several months. It Happened on Fifth Avenue, a lesser known The Invisible Woman. So he was in another universal horror film, or I guess a universal, since this was Paramount. And he was also the voice of uh, Aesop on Bullwinkle, the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. He had a very long career, 153 credits. His film career started in 1914 with a, a supporting role in The Patchwork Girl of Oz, one of the silent Oz films. His last was in 1976, as the voice of Aesop again. And, and I, I don't know what that was, if it was a television special or a film, but he, he did that voice one last time. Aesop's Fables, right, I think is what that mm-hmm. was. That's a fun segment in the, the uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Here he plays Peter Yates, a marketing director of sorts. He knows marketing. He knows, he's like the guy to contact the papers and hype things up. And he's had kind of some history with, with the alcohol a little bit. I think the events of this movie probably led him to drink, because by the end of the film, he was looking pretty tipsy. I don't blame him, though. He he had a stressful time with this job. Uh, you've got Gail Patrick as uh, Jerry Evans. Know, not femme fatale, really, but she was a female scientist, alongside Dr. Jack Woodford, played by Randolph Scott. Now, Gail Patrick, not a huge star in Hollywood, She was in My Man Godfrey, I think, is one of her bigger films. She had an uncredited role in that W.C. Fields film, If I Had a Million. Randolph Scott, much more known. 109 film credits. A lot of westerns. But he did a couple of other films around this time, which are well-known. Have you ever seen Supernatural? Which I think was from 1933? Yes. That's a fun film that... It's kind of gotten lost over the years. It got... Did I see
1: that's getting ready to come out on Blu-ray? Is it really? I think so. I think someone posted in that, I, because the version I saw was a horrible YouTube version.
2: I've got a VHS copy, and I've got the official, I don't know, it wasn't part of the Universal Horrors Collection, I don't think.
1: Fantastic art. The, I guess it was probably the poster, but now they use it for the cover. It's beautiful.
2: Yeah, I, that, I've seen that movie a few times. I've got the VHS. I still have it. I love that movie. That's a movie that just, it doesn't get talked about. I don't think it ever, if it got released on VHS, or rather on DVD, I think it was as part of like maybe a, a, one of those vault collections. And, and I, it's just always so hard to buy those, right? You're paying 20 bucks for one movie that may be 75 minutes. But he's also known for a 1935's She, I guess the original version of that. Have you seen that one? No. I love She. That's a fun flick. It's got Nigel Bruce, who plays Dr. Watson, opposite Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes. And it's always nice to see him in a a different role, although it was almost similar. He kind of was playing a little bit of Watson, if I remember correctly. Not quite as bumbling, but still, I really enjoyed that film. That's a movie that I haven't seen for quite a few years. I still have it. I'm looking at the DVD on the shelf right now. It's the Deluxe Edition. I think there's a colorized version and a black and white version on this one. That's a fun film. I recommend you see that if you haven't. And then finally we have Eric's wife, Evelyn Gorman, played by Kathleen Burke, who didn't have a lengthy career, 22 films, but she is best remembered for her role as the Panther Woman in Island of Lost Souls. What'd you think of Murders in the Zoo? Well,
1: let me tell you, you mentioned earlier a, a movie that You like more and more that you watch it. That's Murders in the Zoo for me. Uh, The first time, I wasn't digging Charlie Ruggles. After the terrific opening of this movie, one of the most terrifying openings. Absolutely, yeah. Probably my favorite opening in one of these old movies.
2: You've seen the image. If you've never seen the film, I guarantee you've seen the image because the image of of the terrified man's face and his mouth has been sewn shut. They're holding him down as they're doing it at the start of the film, 1933, pre-Hays Code, so you could get away with that kind of stuff. You wouldn't a year and a half later, but you could in 1933.
1: So I wonder how that plays into the fact that then you move into this story with this comical goofball, you know, that's applying to be press agent. Did they do that purposely to ease the terror of the story and somehow make it more palatable for audiences i don't know but i struggled with the reversal in tone that kind of goes back and forth through the whole movie i mean one minute lionel Atwill's throwing his wife off into the alligator pit and then the next minute charles ruggles hosting this dinner where he's tells the press okay when i pull my ear take pictures and they're not paying attention when he does it and he keeps pulling his ears yeah, and it's a yeah. whole comic bit all that said, this time I watched it, that didn't bother me. Maybe it's because I knew it was coming, and it just it flowed better for me, and I really, really enjoyed it this time more than I did the first time I watched it.
2: I think it. that can be common. If you're going into a film thinking it's going to be straightforward mystery or a straightforward horror film, and so many of these films from the 30s and 40s would throw in the comedic relief. Bumbling detective, the bumbling news reporter, they're there for, for laughs and to lighten the mood a little bit. you're not prepared for it you could come across or come out of it saying well gosh that that film's not what i thought it was maybe takes two or three viewings and you're like yeah i'm used to it now and and i'm kind of enjoying that i don't recall being put off by that because i kind of i mean i like those old comedies i am familiar vaguely with charlie ruggles but i don't think i really was the first time i saw this which was I had this on VHS, so I would have seen this circa nineteen ninety ninety one, whenever that came out. I don't remember how the how long those sets were putting out, but ninety one ninety two maybe at the latest. one it was one of the latter set. I guess I wasn't phased by that because I I appreciate that comedy. But I can understand if you're going into it because that's been that wave with other films for me sometimes. That why do we have to have this 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 stupid news reporter? subplot that really doesn't add anything to the film I, I get to the monster you know get to the crazy gorilla running through the house yeah. i wouldn't call this a horror comedy though i mean no for uh, me
1: that's more integrated in and even well we'll talk about the the additional bonus movie i think that you can have watched. comedic
2: relief in a film without making it a comedy horror i think when i think comedy horror i think of Ghostbreakers with bob hope or yeah. something this was comedic relief in a horror film
1: So, uh, but no, I like the plot. I mean, he's, I like Lionel Atwell in this. I think it's clever that the the way that the heroes Woodford and and the woman figure it out. I like the sort of the twist that, well, we should probably say a little bit more about what's going on or, or the twist won't make any sense. And this is, help me understand this. So to one of, well, the first murder at this dinner they're having at a fundraiser for the zoo and this man is paying attention to his wife So he rigs a snake bite, but the way he gives it to the person is from the head of a mamba that he has cut off and he's squeezed the venom out of. Yes. But how long does that last before it dries up? Because then that becomes a plot point for the whole rest of the movie, this snake head and who's got it. It
2: does seem to have a lot of venom. And I don't know if he had it rigged up so that maybe that he could continue to just keep the venom in, in there. And it was using it almost like a syringe. I I don't know. They were, they were a little vague on that. And I guess you just kind of have to go with it. I guess 1933 audiences might not ask that, but modern audiences are a little bit more in tune and like, yeah, but how long would that work? So,
1: so the twist then is when he has done that again later after a, at least one other murder, and he's he's doing it to the guy that figured him out. This Woodford, he learns there's an a uh, an antitoxin. He did not know that, therefore, you know his victim is not going to die, and we'll be able to tell everyone that he's the bad guy. So I like that sort of little plot twist. That I didn't see that coming, so I thought that was cool. I love the ending as well. You know, he has he's on the run now that they've discovered him. He. I guess he goes in a cage. I thought at yeah. first he had gone outside the zoo and he was behind the fence, but he's in a, in a cage. There's a Python, you know, very effectively filmed. He's looking out to see if they're coming after him. And the Python slithers up to him and all of a sudden it's wrapped around him. And, and what do, you, what do you call it when you get a Python wrapped around you and it squeezes? It's uh death. It's, no. <laughs> yeah, something to him. And that's really well done. And side note, I'm sure you have it. Do you have it in your trivia? Uh, like how they filmed that. No, no. Oh, they put the Python to sleep. That was Lionel Atwill and they wrapped it around his body.
2: Well, I want to make sure he was asleep. <laughs> like double check that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was a great ending. Uh, I mean, you got the little postscript, right? I think with Charlie Ruggles and as you always do in these films, it's like, there's the couple. And then, then you get that little extra little chuckle at the end. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I love the ending. I love the setting of the zoo. Something unique that if you think about the, these type of, of murder things, there's always a house or this or that. I mean, there's even like with circuses, circuses, there's a whole kind of mini little subgenre of circus films. We're recording this roughly a month ago. So last week I saw Berserk for the first time with uh, Joan Crawford, and I, 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 I thought that was fun. I actually really enjoyed it. I don't know how many other zoo films that we have, really, that, that take place in a zoo. I'm drawing a blank. I'm sure there's there's probably a couple over the decades, but unique, and well, certainly for 1933. Yeah,
1: and you know, the thing about that is the zoo, sure, you think about that. You go during the day, happy, fun place. What happens at night when it's uh, dark yeah, and the, the animals are... That is, I had the opportunity one time uh, when I lived in Dallas to go to Six Flags Over, Texas... At night, after everything had closed. Scary as... I can imagine. I can imagine, So, you know, different, but that's sort of how I would imagine a zoo at night.
2: It would be terrifying to walk through a zoo at night. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, obviously some animals will be asleep. But if you're walking around, you might startle some of the animals. No, at
1: night, they open the cages and the animals get out and play.
2: Oh, okay. Well, then, I'm never (laughs) going to do that, so... (laughs) No, I, I I think yeah, a very cool setting and and creepy in a way. I like they close it down at one point because they've gotta find the the snake yep. and and you know, the kids are wanting to go in there and they're like, You don't wanna do that and it was kinda of funny. You know, you always have I don't know why in these movies, but the, the guard at the front gate is always a hundred and two years old. He really couldn't do much if there needed to be any action. He lets in the the young boy who's the the messenger. And, of course, he's roaming over the entire zoo where he knows the building he needs to go, but he goes through, like, you know, umpteen different exhibits to get to there. And I thought that was, yeah, very telling at the time. You know, it's like that age. And it made me think that there's a certain innocence to this time because I'm not sure that, you know, first off, Kids of that age now wouldn't be working as a messenger going out and about, and, you know, doing all things. Because, I mean, I don't know how old he was, but he looked, far, he was about 10, 11 maybe. You wouldn't have that today. Have You'd be questionable sending a 16-year-old going out and doing that. And the, the idea of, like, going into the zoo, I mean, kids get so jaded as they get older and stuff like that I, you know I I don't know would they? Would a 10 year old who's a, a courier today would, would he get excited about getting a chance to go to the zoo for free I don't know and you think about the first thing you
1: I thought of when you said that was that it was definitely a, a plot point I mean he's the one that's going to find the wife's clothing and, yes, and report yes, but yeah. If so, why take the time to show him going through and looking at the other animals? So that's kind of fun. That's like a, a little extra
2: detail they put in there. I that. thought yeah, that was a lot of fun. I I, I like that little extra that you don't often get in some of these. You know, uh you know lower budget to a degree. This one, I mean, it's not like Poverty Row, obviously, but you know, it wasn't necessarily an A-list film. Uh, this was a B-film. Very well made. I mean, and again, it felt like a Universal film, but this was Paramount. Paramount, around this time period, I think could make good horror films on par with Universal. And I think there's no, you know, surprise then that they would sell it to Universal and Universal would gladly buy the rights. And they still own the rights to it. They've since lost Island of Lost Souls, which was also a Paramount film but they've kept murders uh, in the zoo all these decades and it feels like a universal. Oh, it feels
1: absolutely. I guarantee
2: you most people probably think it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I forgot, you know, partially through it. And that's, I want to come back to that thought when we talk about uh, the other two movies. Well, we'll see if you all think my mind's in the gutter or if your mind goes there, but I had to quote, write down this one quote that I just thought was hilarious. When Lionel Atwell gets accused, you know, of possibly having something to do with the, the man's death at the dinner by the snake bite, he says, you don't think I sat all night with an eight-foot mamba in my pocket, do you?
2: Just, uh, <laughs> I know, that as a line that was totally innocent in 1933 <laughs> yes. and just made you, made you laugh now. Yeah,
1: I got an eight-foot mamba in my pocket.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'd already kind of gone through the cast uh, list here, but you got some really kind of interesting, in like the writers and directors and, and some of the things that they did. they are the the movie was written by um, Philip Wiley and he did Island of Lost Souls he did the Invisible Man uh, adaptation but he also, he wrote 45 books including When Worlds Collide which was the, the novel of which the movie was based on but this was something and I had heard this before but didn't know the name and so I was like, when I heard this I was like, all of a sudden there's that connection to something I'd heard decades ago his novel *Gladiator* was an inspiration for Superman. Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, when they were creating Superman, had read the novel *Gladiator* and kind of patterned that early version of Superman off of that same character from that novel. Hmm. Um, guess Philip Wiley's not a creator of Superman, but an inspiration for. And I remember reading that so long ago, but I just thought that was I thought that was interesting. That is movie was also written by Seaton Miller. Interesting film credits, kind of all across the board. Did Charlie Chan's Courage. You know, a lot of Charlie Chan-related mystery films around that time period. The Seahawk and Adventures of Robin Hood. Two well-known classics. Ministry of Fear. Great film from 44, I think. And then, towards the latter part of his career, Pete's Dragon, of all things. (laughs) You know, so this is somebody who does Murders in the Zoo at the start of the career, and ends up doing Pete's Dragon. Um... Very lengthy career, but it's kind of funny how things work out that way. Uh, The movie is directed by A. Edward Sutherland, who did a lot of W.C. Fields films. Again, there's a W.C. Fields connection with all these, which is kind of weird. He did a movie called It's the Old Army Game, which is one of W.C. Fields' silent films, as well as Tilly's Punctured Romance, another silent movie, late 20s. Mississippi from 1935. Which, going with a theme that we have in this uh, in this episode, is a W.C. Fields film that also features Bing Crosby. All I didn't kind of, know that. See, it ah, all kind of yeah. comes around. Yeah. And Poppy, another W.C. Fields film. Edward Sutherland also did The Invisible Woman. Everything kind of keeps... It's kind all of, connected. It's all connected. Kind of scary. I was mentioning Kathleen Burke earlier. Uh, this was only her second film. So, Island of Lost Souls was her first. This is her second She only did 22 films. Um, She uh, did her last in 1938, left Hollywood. I really wanted to find out more about her, but I couldn't find out anything about her. She Hmm. died at the age of 66 in 1980, and I don't even know what she died of. Doing the research for these films, I was glad to to see that not a lot of people died young. Sometimes that just seems to be a theme. Oh, yeah. Anyway, thankfully, you know, we didn't have that this time. This is one of the, the few exceptions, so... And Gail Patrick, this is another interesting side note, you know, she had a a decent film career, but she was an executive producer of Perry Mason for 271 episodes. Wow. Obviously, I don't know how involved she was in the show. Sometimes the titles of executive producers get thrown around and all it is is maybe your production company's involved in it. Nonetheless, to have your name attached to an iconic television show like that, that's probably really where... Maybe a lot of people may know her better for that than for Murders in the Zoo. Uh, just some fun little side trivia about some of the stars and, and the, the people involved behind the production.
1: So we both like it. We're both positive about it.
2: Yes, and indeed. I, <laughs> I, I love this one. Carla loved this one as well, too. She was getting some creepy vibes off Lionel Atwell. Gets a little creepier in the next film. The animal side of it, I think there was one scene... Because you know, Carla and animals. Yes, so. I was going to ask you. Uh, but there was there was one scene when the uh, the animals get let loose. There's a scene where one of the lions is attacking, I think the leopard or something, and it just happens. And I, I see it, and like my brain connects is like I should tell Carla <laughs> too. And then I hear this ah, scream, and she's like turning away, and she's like, oh my god, you know, and I'm like. Yeah, you should probably hang in there. And so I I had to watch that scene and then tell her when that scene was over. She was not a fan of that. She was okay with the snake stuff because it yeah. really didn't hurt the snakes too much. I mean, granted, they, they, they're they, whacking the one there at one point, but you don't see it. That was a real scene. Those are real animals in that. No, There's no CGI, no man in a suit. No one was killed, but obviously... There was a uh, you know in the process of filming that scene they really did let the animals loose. So. they
1: were just playing like I said at night they opened the cages uh, and the animals. Apparently out and that's play. what they
2: were doing apparently. Yeah. All right, anything else about Murders in the Zoo? No, uh, you know highly recommend it uh, as I said earlier it's on Blu-ray in the Universal Horror Collection volume 2. My copy is a copy of the VHS. It's a bootleg that I bought years ago. But actually, it was really good. I would love at some point, you know, th- these Universal horror collections are a little pricey. Universal loves their movies, so I haven't dived into any of the Blu-ray set. If you're not double dipping and you and you're discovering Universal horror films, man, save up the money and get them because uh, I can only imagine that the the picture on this looks great.
1: Yeah, that's how I watched it, and we'll talk more about those Universal sets. But the this volume two also has Mad Doctor Market Street, which is how I watched the third movie we're going to talk awesome. about. I could not find a trailer for the next movie, so we're going to do something a little different during our break, uh, something we have discussed we need to do more of. So please enjoy that, and we will be back in just a moment.
0: Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize. I'm the host and creator... And I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, billwatchesmovies.com, for show notes blog posts resources and just general dorkitude now i'm also on twitter just search for bill watches movies i'm pretty easy to find and i would absolutely love to hear from you thanks again for checking us out relax enjoy the music and then enjoy the show
2: This old dark house thriller, Lionel Atwell plays Robert von Heldorf, father of Irene, the object of affection for three men attending her birthday party on a dark and stormy night. The youngest, Thomas Brandt, suggests each of them spend a night in the supposedly haunted blue room to prove their bravery to Irene, who will survive past 1 a.m. Before we dive into the second film of our trilogy this month, I do want to make an apology. There's been some audio things that have been picked up, I think, on some recent episodes. And what we have is that when we've got a table, this is not a fancy studio. You know, we don't have... Is it
1: even a studio?
2: I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's, it's the media room. This is where we usually record. And so we've got all sorts of cool stuff on the walls. It feels like, you know, a fun place to record, but... We have, we have a table that we record on. I tend to be active with my hands, and I hit the table, and I notice that it's picking up. Well, apparently, we have top-notch audio equipment because mm-hmm. it's picking up these sounds. So I apologize, and I'm going to be try to be very conscious of not doing that because it's not something we can really edit out in post-production. Maybe somebody can. But not us. I apologize up front for that. and I, I know it hasn't always been that way, but I guess maybe I've gotten really kind of animated in my old age
1: and I don't notice it because I am so intently focused on our conversation.
2: Exactly. And I don't think about it. I'm going to really try to to make a conscious effort of not doing that so hopefully that hasn't bothered too many of you. Uh it's bothered my wife as she's listened to episodes. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we we uh I can get away from that. Anyway, I had to put that in there. So, it's July 20th, 1933 and Secret of the Blue Room. This is a universal horror film with a mystery, old dark house kind of thing. I, it's probably more murder mystery than horror, which is probably why this is a movie that has been really lost in the shuffle, I think, for, for a long time. It was part of the original shock theater package, so it, it made the rounds on television in the 50s and 60s, and then it just disappeared. This is a movie, I I believe it's popped up, I think someone said that it popped up on Turner Classic Movies maybe once. This is a movie that never got released on VHS back in the day. It really wouldn't have fit in the Universal Horror Collection, but they probably could have made it fit. It wasn't part of that, and therefore never got released on VHS. DVDs come out it's not a part of any of the sets that they're putting out and again I, th- I think they could have found a spot for it but they chose not to it finally got released as part of the universal vault series I want to say maybe within the last four or five years maybe a little longer not much and the, uh, you know I don't see this as getting a blu-ray release unless they put it in some type of box set but you know, you can get it for less than twenty dollars, but it's a short film, and as Universal Vault films are like the Warner Archive, they're great, but they're not priced to—they're not priced to sell, in my opinion. However, good luck finding this film otherwise. I finally traced it down years ago uh, on a bootleg copy that was of a film strip. It's not a bad print, and I've only seen this movie once before this viewing. For some reason, it just didn't connect with me. But the second viewing for this show, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one a lot. You've got a really good cast. Uh, Lionel Atwill plays Robert Von Heldorf, while Gloria Stewart plays his daughter, Irene. You've got Paul Lucas as as Captain Walter Brink, Onslow Stevens as Frank Faber, and William Janney as Thomas Brandt, the three suitors of the film, Uh, We'll talk more about the different actors here in a little bit. And then really you've got the police that shows up, Commissioner Forster played by Edward Arnold. Not a huge cast. You've got a few servants thrown in for good measure. It is a classic. It's raining and storming and you're in this great old dark house and there's murder in the Blue Room, essentially. And uh, the Blue Room has all this mystique and history and tragedy behind it. This is a fun film that is actually one of four adaptations, essentially, of the same story. This was a, a remake of a 1932 German film based on a story by Eric Philippi. And, in fact, some of that film is used as stock footage in this version. The exterior castle footage, I think some scenes of the car on the outside, that's all from the 32 German film. A film historian... The legendary William K. Everson. I know we've talked about him on the, on the show, I think. Are you familiar with who that is? I a think little so. Bit? He wrote so many great books back in the 70s. Classics of the horror film, which is a... It was mm. a Bible for me for the longest time. It was my checklist of I want to see that and that and that. William K. Everson, if you're not familiar with him, he was a film historian. He collected film... Uh, you know, actual, you know, uh, films long before, decades before VHS, and he would begin showing them, essentially like a film club. But you you weren't just going to sit and watch a movie. He did extensive research on all of these films that he would show, and then he would, on that wonderful purple mimeograph that just made everybody high when you do those... Did you ever run those machines in oh, yeah. school? Oh, and yeah, yeah. you would smell that stuff, I mean... That, that's still with me today. I was like, I could tell you that smell in a heartbeat. He would mimeograph notes on the film and all this great, you know, historical knowledge. And, and, he, and he wasn't just sticking with films like, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula. And I mean, he would go for the stuff like Secret of the Blue Room that was lesser known. There's a site out there, he's long gone, but you know, who's ever running his estate or who is, has acquired his uh, his property, has uploaded a lot of those original mimeograph notes on Facebook. If I remember, I will try to put a link to that site. It's still I check it every once in a while, and it's still out there. Yeah, I think you can search by film or by you can go alphabetically. He really truly was a great film historian. His comments about this this movie is that. He believed that the the movie, you know, actually would have taken place in Hungary because, of course, the original, you know, 1932 film being in Germany and the exterior, with the the imagery of the castle, gave the you know that that looked like a, a European castle essentially. However, and you know that's about I think where that ends because then you've got this very American audience for the most part. Not giving you a feel that it's a European uh, movie at all. I just thought that was interesting. I saw his name attached to this, and I thought, I know we probably talked about him. I, I've been fascinated by him, and I get fascinated by this website. I'm looking at these. It's one thing to to read somebody's notes. It's another to see the original purple mimeographed. You know, that's legitimately his typed words right there, not somebody just copying it. That's his words. To me, that just makes that site as like, I I almost, you know, want to just print all of that off and put it into a book. Why somebody hasn't done that, I don't know. You know, that's a part of of film history that uh, thankfully that that site, like I said, hopefully it doesn't go away anytime soon because it's an amazing site to continue to his legacy. And I believe, I mean, it goes into details about like what happened to those films because they did go into like, I think there was, don't quote me, but I think a library or a film archive, I mean, took possession of those films, and again, most of them, probably other copies exist, and I know, he would show some very rare things. My understanding is, some of the stuff that he would show, still hasn't been released publicly. <laughs> there's just a lot of great films out there, with lesser known stars, they're not public domain, there's a little haze, you know, who owns the rights to them, so they slip through the cracks. This being a universal film, it still slipped through the cracks, for a very long time, because it wasn't straightforward horror, it was mystery but you know they couldn't put it in any of the horror packages there was talk about it for a time that the that there wasn't a good print of it out mine was as i said a bootleg copy that came from a film strip that i personally thought was good but i get it might have been passable for vhs but not going to be in the digital age i don't know how did you see youtube okay And it was not a good print. Not a good print. Okay, so I really wonder how good the Universal Vault print is. I'm satisfied with mine, so I'm not going to upgrade. I can't imagine that it would be that much of an upgrade because of the age of this film, and I don't think it's one that's been taken care of a lot. I'd be really curious to hear if anyone has the Universal Vault collection, you know, version of it, you know, what the quality of the print was compared to maybe something else they've seen on YouTube or something.
1: Speaking of the quality of the print, and this is what I wanted to say earlier about Murders in the Zoo being paramount and this being universal. Even with the poor quality aside, I think there was a distinct difference in production between the two. I mean, they were made the same year, but Murders in the Zoo was much more polished and yes. uh, I don't want to say professional, but it, and saying that when we watched it, it felt like a universal movie. Well, and then this was a Universal movie, it didn't really feel like a Universal movie. Well,
2: that it might very well be because this was Universal's lowest-budgeted film of 1933. Considering how much output Universal had at that time, if this was the lowest budget, I think you're looking at probably Poverty Row level, maybe a little above, but you're looking at Bottom of the Barrel, legitimately Bottom of the Barrel some of the sets were reused from the old Dark House from the previous year. You didn't have a lot of money put into this film, and again, it does look. Yeah, it looks. It, you well, know, and we didn't. I don't men- think it deters from the enjoyment of the film. No, but, no. But you're not going to get huge, lavish, Son of Frankenstein, ex- expansive sets. Not going to get that with this one. Um, it's it's very limited. Again, it it does look like a, a poverty row film,
1: and I think. You know, if you think about Dracula and Frankenstein, both came out before this, and those are, you know, super beautiful movies. I know we call them B-films today, but at the time, I don't think really those were B-films. Those were major theatrical releases. This, at the time, I think would have been considered a B-film. We didn't mention it, but all three of these movies are barely over an hour. So that would be exactly what a B-film is, the second feature that goes with the big A-list film, so this is definitely a B-movie.
2: Yet, when you start this movie off, and you're hearing Swan Lake, well, yeah. I mean, what does that immediately takes you to Dracula? I know that that it was used in multiple films around the time, but I had forgot that when this is going, and and I remember Carla looked at me and she's like. Well, that, you know, you know that's, that's Swan Lake. That sounds familiar. I was like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, Dracula. She says, yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah, so immediately you get this, yeah, this is a universal film. But did Murders in the Zoo have a score? Um, no, I don't really think that it did. Very minimal if it did. Okay,
1: because this didn't. I mean, other than Swan Lake at the beginning.
2: I, I can't, I don't remember. There, if there was, there wasn't much of one. Not uncommon for films around this time period, though, that didn't really have much right, in the right. way of, of scores. But other some did, but the, the cheaper films it didn't have the money for it, really, to, to pour into that type of production. All that said, I think this is a really good old Dark House film, despite the fact that you're dealing with a limited budget in limited sets. It, it has all the earmarks, right? I mean... Uh, The storm outside, the mysterious character lurking outside the house, you know. The red herring is being placed everywhere. You've got murder, you've got a a secret, you know, secret passages and a room that's been locked for, you know. Everything that you would expect to find in an old Dark House film, you find it in this one. And ironically, I think that may have been why at the time it wasn't well received. Some of the reviews of the time claimed that it was an unoriginal film. It's like, seen it, and done it. And I guess, you know, if you think about that, even by like 1933, I think of like a lot of old Dark House films from this time period. There was a lot like in 31, 32, 33. A lot of them are public domain. If you, you watch any of those Mill Creek sets and some of those early films, you see a lot of that. And so I guess by 1933 film critics and, and maybe even film goers. Nothing, you know, I had nothing new, you know. Um, it's, it's you know, kind of standard fare. And therefore, and, you know, it, you didn't necessarily have, I you know, I don't want to say, you didn't have A-list actors necessarily. I mean, Lionel Atwell was known. I don't think he was ever an A-list actor, but he was known by this point. You know, I think some of these stars are perhaps better known now, like Gloria Stewart. She had been in The Old Dark House, The Invisible Man. So she was well-known. Um, she was riding a wave of success. I think she's probably has a much higher pedestal now simply because, A, she's Gloria Stewart. She comes from that. You, you know, she was in... Uh, she played Queen Anne in the 1939 version of The Three Musketeers. But then, of course, she played Old Rose in Titanic in 97, which just kick-started her whole career you know, and she lived to be a hundred. You know, she died in 2010 at the age of a hundred. That also elevates your your pedestal substantially. And then Onslow Stevens, Onslow Stevens, and Paul Lucas again names not necessarily household now, but they were well known for the time period. Paul Lucas around this time period was was doing The Lady Vanishes. He had more films coming down the pike. Played Athos in uh, the 35 version of The Three Musketeers. Uh, he was in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Many years later, but he was also in the forties. He was in the Ghost Breakers. He was also in the Monster and the Girl, which is uh, I don't, that's not Universal. Isn't that a Paramount film? I don't really think that's Universal. I, don't I think either. Universal put it out. I think that's a Paramount film. It's doesn't get a lot of love, and there's good reason for it. It's not one of the best from that time period. Onslow Stevens played Aramis in the thirty-five version of the Three Musketeers. He was in a 35 film called Life Returns, which I believe that is universal, and I think it's a public domain universal film. He was also in, played Dr. Frank uh, Edelman in House of Dracula. Uh, he was also in Them as the Brigadier General, which I don't remember seeing him. He must have looked a little different, or maybe I just I need to go back and rewatch Them for the umpteenth time and, and catch that. Now, the rest of the cast, I mean, William Janney, not a great Long film career, Laurel and Hardy's *Bonnie Scotland* was really the only film that really stood out to me. Other than he played Buddy Cassidy, the brother of uh, William Boyd's *Hopalong Cassidy*, in *Hopalong Cassidy Returns*, and it's the only film that you ever saw Hopalong's brother. So that's that's like a trivia question there. Mm. But he retired only uh, four years after this film. He retired in 1937 after 40 films. Uh, and Edward Arnold, who played Commissioner Forster. A couple of big films, uh, you know. A few years down the road, you can't take it with you. And Mister Smith goes to Washington. Both, but Jimmy Stewart. He's also in The Devil and Daniel Webster. Played Daniel Webster. Interesting. Thought that you've got some some well known people. Maybe not as well known back then, but over the years, I think because of the movies they've done and those movies have held the test of time. You've got some some well known names now. I mentioned that this movie was based on a story by Eric Philippi. Not a lot. I mean, he's got like 10 credits to his name. And again, some of those are for the same story. He died at a young age. We did have some deaths. Uh, he died in 1952 at the age of 51. Hmm. And I couldn't find any reason why he died, other than he died in Germany. The screenplay was by William Hurlbut, who apparently was involved in Bride of Frankenstein. For some reason, I've never heard that name attached to Bride of Frankenstein. I guess I don't know every fine detail of that. Directed by Kurt Newman. Now that's a name that you might have known. Ner- so yeah, so Kurt- Yeah, so he did uh, four Tarzan films. He did Rocketship XM. He did uh, Kronos and The Fly. So that may be where you remember him. The Fly was one of his last films, and it was uh, he died at the age of fifty. Some say suicide, some say natural causes. And it was released, The Fly was released actually one month after his death. I think we touched on this when we did The Fly, but it's worth, again, if we didn't for some reason, I'm still curious as to his involvement in Godzilla 1977. He's listed as one of the directors for that infamous Italian colorized version of Godzilla which incorporates film footage from other movies. And I, they, I don't know if that... Because he's long gone by this point. Did they pull footage from one of his films and that way he got credit for that? But I couldn't find out what film that would have been. Apparently, this is still uh, a movie that Toho is not happy with. Reportedly, a good print of this resurfaced a few years ago, but hasn't popped up anywhere And I don't know if this was on the recent Criterion release or the one from a few years ago, but apparently his name, the the, the 1977 Godzilla film was mentioned on the commentary track. And Toho said, nay, nay, and made sure that references to that were deleted. Hmm. They would not put their stamp of approval on the commentary. That still is a film that Toho... Wants to totally wipe out. And they almost have done it. But there's still a print or two out there. I've seen footage of it. That pops up on YouTube. It's really poor footage. It's bizarre. Have you ever seen any footage of that? No. But they did. They they colorized. But it was a weird colorization process where they used, like, tints, but multiple tints at the same time. And it's Italian. uh, (laughs) And there's... You know, other film clips that they put into it. I've never seen the whole movie, but the clips I've seen look bizarre. It it looks like something that would have been on some, like, you know, experimental uh, public access television channel Friday night at 3 in the morning. And there's probably drugs involved. It's like that's, that's the gist you get when you watch it. It's very bizarre. In any case, Kurt Newman is a name that I think a lot of people probably remember. As uh, aside from say Lionel Lana Atwell and Gloria Stewart, is probably the most well known uh, name involved in, in this uh, in this fun little flick.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. I really did, and I didn't figure out the uh, culprit. Did you? Am I am no, I just slow? No. Or? No. I,
2: I have to admit, you know, I mean. It was looking pretty grim there for Lionel Atwell for a while, and then, you know, they did throw you for a curve. I didn't catch it either. So yeah. if, if it was out there, uh, all you know, more power to you, I didn't catch it. so I, I, I caught
1: the method. You'd have to be pretty slow. And, you know, maybe back then secret passageways were not a thing, but certainly these days... That's no mystery how someone got into the locked room. Obviously, there's got to be a, a a secret passageway.
2: I think it's kind of like when you watch these old movies, you think every house has a secret passage, and I'm going to die by quicksand at some point. <laughs> that, there's a legitimate threat, and then you know you, you, you become an adult, and you're like, I'm still... Looking for the secret passage in my house, and I have yet to see quicksand. Not that I want to, but I kind of do. I was expecting that I would have to be putting on, you know, my my, you know, the, the little pith helmet and it'd be swinging over uh, to to get to uh, to safety from the uh, from the uh, sand pits below. So, in the Universal Horrors book that I had uh, talked about from uh, earlier, Gloria Stewart had a uh, comment about uh, Lionel Atwill. She said, uh, quote, Lionel was what we call an actor's actor, very much involved with oneself. He had been a fantastic matinee idol, but of course, by the time he got to Universal, he had a little bit of a pot belly. He seemed old to me at the time, although probably he was only in his late 40s. He was a brilliant actor. This is an interesting quote when you go into another thought that I had, and that's the lingering kiss between the two, Lionel Atwill and Gloria Stewart's characters of Robert and Irene. Now, at the time you see this lingering kiss, they're supposedly... Father and daughter. It gets to be uncle later on. Spoiler alert. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. No, that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> a little uh, weird. A little uncomfortable. A little bit. And and adds to the kind of the creepiness that that I think uh, Carla feels whenever she sees Lionel Atwell. She's like, he's just always playing a bit of a creep. And it's like I never really picked up on that, but I guess maybe sort of a little bit. And I don't know if that was just the roles he was playing or. You know, we're going to talk about it here shortly. Maybe a a precursor of the scandal a little bit that he would kind of be involved in. Nonetheless, I just found that quote kind of interesting from from her considering that little lingering kiss. What are your thoughts about the lingering kiss?
1: Yeah, I definitely made a note of it. It was very disturbing. Uh, The one thing I want to point out, too, and everyone's probably figured it out, but this was a different role for Lionel Atwell than the other two movies. He was... And it's ironic because this movie he was top billed, and yet really he wasn't the main character. Um, yes, he's just b- there basically to be the red herring. But he's not—he's uh, not a bad guy, really. I mean, he's not an evil no. mad scientist or a mad doctor. So it, it was a little bit unique role than the other two and then a lot of the movies that we're probably familiar the last comment I wanted to make is and like I said I really really enjoyed this movie the the mystery I really enjoyed when the commissioner comes in and he sits them all down for like an interrogation and one by one he calls them and they stand up and go to his table and he asks his questions I, I really liked that and Yeah, it was probably common, like you said, for movies like that, but I just haven't seen a lot of those movies and I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I couldn't figure out the mystery, the red herrings everywhere. This reminds me of a a movie I saw recently, Knives Out, in a way. I mean, that's a stretch, but they're very similar. And so if I were to compare the two, if Knives Out is like a modern masterpiece, murder mystery, I'd call this Sporks Out.
2: Okay, I haven't seen *Knives Out*. We missed that in the theater. That was going to be a Christmas time viewing, and then we both got sick. So we were doing good to see *Star Wars*, *Knives Out*. Everything I've heard about it, it's almost. I feel like it needs to be a a blind buy for me, and I don't do that very often. But considering that they've already done uh, announced a sequel. I love the cast. I, I'm, I'm totally in on it. I so, think you'll like it. Sporks out. This movie was remade two more times. Just before recording, we had a chance to to sit down and see one of those. It was remade both times by Universal uh, as The Missing Guest in 1938 and Murder in the Blue Room in 1944. Now I don't have trivia because that's not one of the films we're covering. However, I thought it was a it was a fun little bonus. Once I did the research and and discovered that these films existed, I was like, "Oh well, I wonder if they're out there. Well, last night, I found Murder in the Blue Room on YouTube. It's a horrible copy. Someone put a filter on it that kind of makes it look like shaky cam. I I don't know why, because I don't think YouTube is really going to care that this movie is out there. I don't think Universal probably cares that it's out there. After watching The Missing Guest today, clearly these two movies loosely adapt the idea of the Blue Room. They take some of the ideas from Secret of the Blue Room, but they've kind of changed some of the setting. And from what little I did see of Murder in the Blue Room, it's clearly a remake of The Missing Guest, whereas The Missing Guest was a retooling of the original story. We have a Blue Room. We have Murder. We have a woman. We have a suitor. We really don't have all the multiple things going on. The missing guest throws in the a comedic relief of sorts. You've got a, a newspaper guy who's doing the the research. You you've got the the butler, you know but there's some major differences in the plot. Again, loosely adapted, but I think if you were to take if if you were to take blue room out of out of it, I don't think you'd probably connect it at all to yeah. secret of the blue room. The Missing Guest is kind of a mystery comedy of sorts. Murder in the Blue Room decides to throw some musical numbers in <laughs> and what I saw did not work for me. Now maybe a better print I might have been engaged in it. Uh the print was annoying me and I had to stop so I didn't see all of that. But we did see the missing guest. I really liked it. I thought it was a fun film.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. But if you were to compare the two, I think Secret of the Blue Room is much better.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's a there's a mister mysterious vibe in Secret of the Blue Room that is totally missing in the Missing Guest. Secret of the Blue Room stands out to me as, as something a little more special. Missing Guest is very much so a B film. Something fun to to watch on a on a uh, Saturday afternoon like we did throwaway. I think it was, it was an hour film. I don't, I don't think it was much more than that. Forgettable, essentially, but not bad. I'd watch it again if it was on. I'm probably not going to go out and buy it. I don't think you can buy it, but I don't regret watching it. No. So, no. You know, I. It was fun to see what they took with that idea five years later, just five years later. I mean, we talk about reboots and sequels and all that stuff now. I mean, think back then was five years. Even by that standard, it's pretty quick to do a retooling i know it happened sometime back then but that seemed fairly quick for a movie that supposedly wasn't well received and well, i, think I wonder if
1: that this is a cheap movie to make i mean there's basically one set you know there's no special effects to speak of i mean if you needed to make a movie cheap this would be a good one to do
2: absolutely yeah my final words were i i really love this one a lot more than the first time i watched it i would definitely watch this one again it's it's available again on the DVD in the Universal Vault series. So I don't know. $18, $19 a little pricey for the film. Hopefully at some point maybe it goes down in price, but definitely worth checking out if you so have an opportunity. Yes, and before we take a break, let's return to the
1: to biography real quick and fill in some years on what happened to Lionel Atwell post these two movies. Even though he had begun to take these more horrific roles, he somehow escaped typecasting, and that's just sort of what a, a versatile actor he was. Part of his control too that was that he took other movies that weren't horror movies. He claimed that Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi had the market covered, so that's why he sort of wasn't forced by external forces or pigeonholed into simply horror roles. Those icons Karloff and Lugosi were filling that those roles at that time. Again, living high on the hog, he had a farm in Maryland. Uh, had a home in lake michigan he made seven movies in 1934 uh, and he purchased a beach home in pacific palisades five films in 1925 and 35 and then three in 1936 he maintained a party animal lifestyle in october of 36 he went back to england to make a film high command then he returned a few months later in january of 37 he made six films in 1937 I loved this piece of trivia. Did you know he was supposed to be the voice of Grumpy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs?
0: I did not. He uh, he
1: did not end up being the voice, but he was intended to be that. It it didn't happen. I I am not sure why.
2: Wow, I'm not. It's been a long time since I've seen Snow White, but I'm trying to visualize or you know or hear that. And I, wow, I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that.
1: He uh, made two films in 1938. Uh, he had a contract with Fox, but in mid-1938, he actually broke it because he, in his contract, was supposed to also be allowed to write, produce, and direct. But halfway through the contract, they had done nothing but stick him in movies, so he was able to successfully break his contract. In 38, he returned to Universal and, of course, probably one of his most iconic roles, Son of Frankenstein. He made eight other movies in 1939. In 1939, at the end of the year, his son got a doctor's degree, was also in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he would be killed in service. So that was a, a tragedy for Lionel Atwill. Here's where I want to read a, a quote from the book. It kind of summarizes uh, the 1930s in that that period uh, for Lionel Atwill. The 1930s had been a golden decade for Lionel Atwill. He was one of Hollywood's most highly respected and sought-after character actors. He was earning substantial amounts of money that offered him a luxurious standard of living. He was married to an extremely wealthy woman. He traveled often from East Coast to West Coast and back again, making the most of his homes. In both a large house and beach homes in Los Angeles, and a palatial mansion out east in Maryland. He had two yachts, one on a lake near his Baltimore home, the other on the west coast. He had a valet to look after all his domestic needs. In his social life, he met and entertained rich and important guests, some of them foreign royalty, whose presence gave him prestige and status. It was a dream life. And then they asked the question what could possibly go wrong? <laughs>
2: You know, it's kind of amazing that, you know, I never knew that when you hear that, it's like I don't, I just, Lionel Atwell and Parting Animal don't know mine. (laughs) And I, nor do I, I visualize him as being one who would have this, this lifestyle. And I think it just, it shows that, you know, you can clearly separate what you see on the screen and what happens off screen. And sometimes they're very different personalities, very different people. Oftentimes, you know, we, we have our film heroes, and, and we think, well, you know, gosh, they, they you know, are are doing this and that, and then, you know, that must be what they do off camera. And it's like, no, no, they've got a very different, different persona. Even in the public eye, I think the, there's people who have that. They act a certain way, but then when you close the doors, it's like very different, very private. You know, their private lifestyle is not something they make public. And I think... Very much the case with Lionel Atwell. When things, unfortunately, became too public, things would would definitely take a turn.
1: I haven't read a lot of biographies, but it just sort of amazes me that he had so much money. I mean...
2: I was thinking the same thing. I was like, he was very prolific, and I think maybe that was the key thing, right? Yeah. He wasn't doing one A film a year, but he was doing eight B films... He was probably making pretty good money. Well, yeah, when he makes
1: eight movies a year. And and like he said, he would take those minor roles in genre films because they paid well.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and again, I mean, the more films you do, his name was getting recognizable. It's a name you could throw up on a movie poster, and people would know who Lionel Atwell was. Again, not an A-list character, but B-list and prolific. Yeah, he was making a... Pretty darn good living. I, I would do eight movies <laughs> a year. Give me a B part, and, and if I get a yacht and, and a couple homes, uh-huh. sure, why not? Uh-huh.
1: So it's 1940 now. He made six films in 40, and these were all supporting roles. So he had definitely made a shift here where he was pretty much always the, the character actor, of the supporting role. Then in December, back to Universal for Man Made Monster. In November of 1939, his current marriage was on the rocks, and he ordered Louise out of the house. I quote this from the book. Now he could have the parties he liked.
2: <laughs> so there's no, they not wouldn't a... get, They wouldn't get divorced, though, I think, for like another four years. Right. Yeah, yes. so they were separated, but yeah, they wouldn't get divorced until 1943.
1: So it was the Christmas season of 1940, 1941. His parties had gotten a little out of control from the sense of the people that came to the party. The, the book calls them some shady characters. In May of 41, his name was mentioned in a court case. A woman was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor at one of his parties. At this point, that's all that has happened. His name was mentioned. He would continue making movies. This is going to come back to haunt him and take a significant turn for him. But that is post the movie we're going to talk about next. So we'll return to that exciting story.
2: I will ask, though, before we do that, did your, did the biography, did it touch on that, the story of that, that girl, like her background and all of that, kind of the details around that? No. I read an article, an old article, but it was posted online. There was so much shade around that, that young girl and essentially.
1: The one that was supposedly the victim?
2: Yes. Yeah, okay. So, and, and the people she hung around with. Long story short, girl in the Midwest goes out to seek fame and fortune and hooks up with the wrong people and essentially became involved with a couple. Got involved in all sorts of weird stuff with this couple. They were essentially a a little triad of fun. Threesome? Uh, Yeah, I was trying to come up with something, you know, grand. But yeah, they they were doing some stuff and, and... then goes to this party, but then it sounds like from the, the article that she wasn't a willing participant and it, the wife maybe wasn't as willing, but didn't necessarily pull herself or the girl out of it and it's kind of like you got in a bad situation, you couldn't get out and things got out of control and there was all sorts of other stuff going on. I get the gist that there was alcohol and drugs and uh, these were, as you said, these parties got out of control. I, I, When I read this article, and when you said that, I immediately think of 16 Candles, you know, how a party can yeah. just, I want to have a simple party, and then like, you know, the next morning, everything's in shambles. I, I think that, I think I, I got a feeling that's kind of what happened. I think he wanted this, this lifestyle, and then it just got out of control, and there were people at this party he probably didn't even know. Yeah. And this incident happens with this girl at this party there was so much with that and that 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 was the initial court case and then just his name starts to get drug into it more but initially there was and there was witnesses who were they didn't want to nobody wanted to testify and well they didn't you know they just didn't have a case if nobody wants to testify and despite the fact that you know this girl had had been allegedly abused at one of these parties you know, it just seemed like nobody knew anything. And it was just, as you said, there were a lot of shady characters involved in this. It was a really interesting article that Lionel Atwell was mentioned, but it was focusing on this girl and this this, this couple that she became entangled with. You always hear about, you know, like the girl going off to Hollywood and getting wrapped up in producer or the guy or agent or something. But this was a couple, and that was, I'm thinking 1939, 1940, you wouldn't think that kind of stuff happened. But, you know, Hollywood was a different world, and that stuff might not have happened in Hoboken, but, you know, it was happening in Hollywood. (laughs) Well, the couple of thoughts I had were, well, first of all, so
1: this happened at his house, and that's why he was dragged into it, but really had nothing to do with it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But the second thing I thought of was, it was a woman that was charged. She was the one taken to trial for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The book didn't really say what that meant. Did she give her... I mean, the girl was 16 years old. Did she give her a drink? Is that how she... I think
2: it's because she they, they, they the couple took her to a party. Uh, the woman was kind of initially taking the lead. And because there was sexual you know activity and drinking and drugs and stuff that's the contributing because you took but the person why her,
1: why was she why was the lady focused on rather where was the man at that time
2: well I mean. and that's the article i mean it 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 it's centered on 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 her her kind of taking the lead because i guess she had the power allegedly had the power to get the girl out of the situation okay she and and she was kind of taking the lead but there was the husband involved, and I don't know why the husband wasn't necessarily getting charged, other than, like I said, this article goes into a lot of detail about just the levels of, of, of stuff that, to a degree, this young girl on the surface looked like she was willing but she was also young and naive and was being she she was being misled and and being led down a path i mean you can sit there and say well somebody who goes into a life of of prostitution or drugs they should have known better no sometimes if they're young they don't know better but the 30 40 year old people that are pulling them into that life yeah, they know better, and they know exactly what they're doing. And they're and I think that's what the case was. I think someone had to be charged, and I think she was kind of taking the lead. Whether or not, you know, allegedly she, you know, was just as much in in deep as the girl was. It looks like she was the one that was taking the fall.
1: Hmm. I'd like to read that article because the book does not really tell much. I'll about I'll see if I can find it. Video. Yeah,
2: it was it was something I just I randomly found. Well, let's take a pause there,
1: come back, talk about the final movie, and then we'll uh, wrap up the life of Lionel Atwill. You see, I've gone as far as I can in my scientific research among the
0: lower animals. But it is obvious that my findings will not be accepted by the medical world until they have first been demonstrated upon a human being. dramatically begins the absorbing story of six human souls marooned on a savage island at the mercy of a mad scientist who claimed he could bring the dead back to life and needed victims to prove it.
1: You can't do a thing like that. I never. I
0: can't. Can't I? I'm not going to let that crackpot kill me. Oh, I'm not you make Barab live before sun come up or you go in fire. Wait a minute, are you on the level about giving us this jungle hot foot? Tell me. I'll take these four.
2: Lionel Atwell plays Dr. Ralph Benson, professor of research, forced to flee when the authorities discover his deadly experiments to bring the dead back to life, or really, to put his subjects into an extended state of suspended animation and then wake them up. Masquerading on a cruise ship as Graham, his true identity is discovered when a fire causes the boat to sink and a small group of survivors are stranded on what they think is a deserted island. February 27th, 1942, The Mad Doctor of Market Street is released. And before we dive into the film, I want to know what happened in 1942. We haven't done 1942. You know, it's going to become a challenge as we do some of these years. 1942, we hadn't done. Man, what a year. A lot of stuff happened in 1942. Keep in mind, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. Mad Doctor of Market Street is coming out just less than three months after... What was for the United States the start of war and I think really the start of World War II because at that point, everybody's in the game. The president was, of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. British Prime Minister was Winston Churchill. You have the Russian General Secretary of the Central Committee was Joseph Stalin. The uh, Italian Prime Minister was Benito Mussolini. The Japanese Prime Minister was Hideki Tojo and German Chancellor Adolf Hitler. I don't know if you could come up with more well-known and historical figureheads of state, I, really. I mean, that's, that's an iconic list of individuals there. Some legendary for good reasons, some not. There was a mobilization of war efforts happening throughout the United States as we had just entered into World War II. Car makers and manufacturers were switching from producing, essentially, cars for the masses to weapons of war. War bonds... In 1942, they raised $13 billion for the war effort. War bonds, for those of you who might not know, essentially it was kind of like a savings bond, but you were buying a war bond, $20, that $20 went to the government to put towards the war effort. When the war was over, you get your $20 back, right? That's plus, I think, was there interest involved in war bonds? I don't know. I think I know. so. But war bonds was huge. You listen to old time radio shows of the day and there's always wartime war bond rallies and things. That was a huge thing. Captain America. If you've seen the first Captain America movie, I mean, he's going around from city to city without selling war bonds, raising money. Voice of America begins broadcasting. The Doolittle Raid was the first air attack on Japan. The draft age is lowered from 21 to 18. U.S. gas rationing was happening. You could only buy three gallons of gas per week. Carpooling was big. Walking to work was big. Taking public transit was big. The luxury of driving your own car—you couldn't do a cross-country trip because you weren't going to have the uh, the money to or the rationing to do it. So many people took the train if they had to travel. That was—you had to do it that way. Of course, the Battle of Midway begins uh, on June fourth. And then one of the darkest moments, I think, in U.S. history, Executive Order 9066, Forcible Removal of All Japanese Americans into internment Camps. George Takei, who played Mr. Sulu on Star Trek, there's my Star Trek mm-hmm. reference. I'm stretching it here. Nonetheless, his book, uh, his autobiography, the first half of it is about his internment in a Japanese camp. There is an uh, an amazing, and I forget the name of it. I should have wrote it down, but an amazing graphic novel that came out last year that basically shows his story. It truly makes that the best of all the uh, the uh, biographies uh, about stars from, from any version of Star Trek. His story. Uh, he's turned it into a, a Broadway musical. Didn't do really well, but you know he at least he can say he did it. I always wanted to see it. Hopefully, I get a chance to see it. I know that they did some presentations in theaters uh, about it. That story just has always intrigued me, and it's, again, one of our darkest days. 1942. The fire at Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston killed 492 people. Worst nightclub fire in U.S. history. And we had some inventions, you know. We got a lot of inventions that came out of the war. Instant coffee was introduced in 1942. Werner von Braun invented the guided missile, The Manhattan Project started, and duct tape started being used by the U.S. military. Stars that are still with us today that were born in 1942, Harrison Ford, Paul McCartney, and Martin Scorsese. Hmm. Uh, Obviously amongst others, but pretty impressive list. Popular songs of the day, I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo by Glenn Miller, The Jersey Bounce by Benny Goodman, Big band music, huge in 1942. That is wartime music at its finest. By the end of the year, we got White Christmas by Bing Crosby in one of the top films of the year, Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn doesn't get seen quite as much now, but White Christmas is played about once an hour (laughs) ad nauseum throughout the holiday season. I get tired of it by Christmas, but by the time November rolls around, I love White Christmas, and I can listen to it a million times. A million and one I tap out. Top movies of the day, mainstream films besides Holiday Inn, you had Bambi was released, Aww. Casablanca, and Road to Morocco. And not a lot of, of like huge horror films in 1942, but there's a, you know probably the biggest I think was uh, Cat People. You had uh, the Mummy's Tomb, one of the three Lon Chaney Jr. films that always get Tomb, Ghost, and Curse mixed up. Speaking of Ghost, Ghost of Frankenstein came out that year. The Mad Monster, which is now a public domain flick. And then you got The Boogeyman Will Get You with Boris Karloff. Peter Lorre, right? Yeah, Peter Lorre's in that, I think. I love that film. Nonetheless, that's what was happening in 1942. And then, of course, there was The Mad Doctor of Market Street with Lionel Atwill playing the character of Dr. Ralph Benson, a.k.a. Graham, the Mad Doctor of the South Seas, which was actually kind of, sort of, one of the original titles for this movie. When this movie was in pre-production and production, it was originally called Terror of the South Seas and then it became Terror of the Islands before becoming the Mad Doctor of Market Street. Hmm. I don't think really necessarily any of the titles fit. I think the Mad Doctor of the South Seas might have been more appropriate. I mean, yeah, he was a Mad Doctor on Market Street, but Market Street has such a small part in the film Mad Doctor of the Islands was kind of, I don't know, Mad Doctor of the South Seas would kind of click for me. I think you could have done something with that. Nonetheless, we got the Mad Doctor of Market Street. Before we dive into casts and all the, I didn't get a lot of trivia on this one. What are your thoughts about the Mad Doctor?
1: Well, I want, before I give my thoughts, I want to give a couple of, th- of other things. Again, he was not top build, he was second. And I would like to, and this might put you into the cast, but I would like to talk about the woman who was top-billed. Uh, she has one name that evokes uh, a, another actress from Universal Films who is quite controversial. The moment this woman walked out, I, I even made a note, there was something about her. She definitely had had some charisma, I guess but very, very soon started sawing away at my nerves. Uh, the woman's name was Una Merkel, and she did evoke Una O'Connor, not as extreme, but nevertheless, to me, very annoying with her actions and reactions to things going on in the story, and she was top yeah. build.
2: Una Merkel is one of those female comedians of the day, kind of a pseudo-character actress, not quite to the level, I don't think, as to the comedic level of uh, Zazu Pitts, who I thats a deep dive for a lot of people. Zazu Pitts is one of those people that is funny, but in small doses. She did a lot of short subjects, two real short subjects with Thelma Todd. We talked about Thelma Todd many episodes ago. I'm fascinated with her story. I think a two-reeler would be good for, for Zazu Pitts. Anything more than that? She gets on my nerves a little bit. Funny, but small doses. Una Merkel as <laughs> Aunt Margaret. And and she's aunt to Patricia, played by Claire Dodd. And I'm like, how, how does that work? Now I get it, you know. I mean, there can be close ages and aunts and uncles and, and all that kind of stuff. And their nephews and nieces. But I don't know. This was a stretch for me to think she was really aunt because... She clearly wasn't much older, if at all, uh over Patricia. She was a quirky yeah, quirky character, to be to be sure. And I, I think I thought the same thing. When I must thought Una at first I had to do a double take. because It had been so long since I'd seen this and I was like, Oh, okay, Una Merkel. I'm familiar with her. She was in the Bat Whispers in 30, Dustry Rides Again, uh Road to Zanzibar. The Bank Dick, another W.C. Fields film. Uh, She's also in The Parent Trap, though, many, many years Mm. later. So I I don't been so long since i've seen that movie i couldn't tell you what she played. Would no it, known enough at the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Would it be appropriate to call her the Charlie Ruggles of The Mad Doctor of Market Street? Absolutely. I,
2: I think so. <laughs> so again because again, top build, right? So. Yeah, and
1: they're bringing in a comical character to relieve the tension of yes, the, everything. Yes. Exactly. That's going exactly on, the so. same i think. So that was tied to answering your question on what i thought of The Mad Doctor of Mar- Mad Doctor of Market Street. I didn't so much care for her. The movie itself, there's a lot going on, man. There's a lot of plot, a lot happens. It moves quickly. It's. It
2: jumps. Sometimes
1: you're like, what happened? True, yeah. Uh, It's.
2: Uh, I don't know. It's. There's a reason this film got lost in the shuffle, (laughs) all right? This movie, you know, was part of the shock theater package. So it was on television in the 50s and 60s. I don't think it's probably ever been on TV since. I certainly have never seen it on TV. I became aware of it, but it never got a VHS release, not an official one. And it was in the tail end of the DVD releases. It was in that Turner Classic Movies cult horror classics collection that was way overpriced. I had already had a bootleg copy of it by that point. I was happy with what I had. I remember it was like, I didn't hate the movie. But I didn't like, I've got to get a better copy of it. Now I was happy with what I got. And I still am, honestly. It is on Blu-ray now as part of the Universal Horror Collection. And it's probably a better print than what I had. Does it make it a better movie? Probably not. Is it a bad movie? No. It's a low-budget, thrown-together film that I think, in all honesty, suffers from some poor Direction or poor editing, some poor post-production, you kind of jump, right? There's there's some, there's some big jumps that happen.
1: Yeah, like, for example, when they wash up on the shore and they don't think anyone's there, and then the native runs back to tell his tribe that they're there. Next thing you know, they're in a hut where the natives have captured them and taken them Yeah, I um, you know, saw nothing like, between A and B. I mean, you
2: know, you get the gist yeah, of what happened, yeah. but there's no explanation of, like, it just seemed odd. You know
1: what? We need to see a director's cut of the Mad Doctor of Markets. Well,
2: I'm thinking that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this movie, it's not one of Universal's best. I don't know. You know, it's kind of harsh to say, is it one of their worst? I mean, it's, mm. it's it's got horror elements to it. A little bit of, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely, the comedy overshadows the horror elements. And the horror is marginal, I've had conversations with Carla about how films can kind of cross genres. There can be sci-fi horror, you know, and there can be comedy horror, and there can be Western horror, and she struggles with that sometimes. It's like, in her mind, is it a Western? Is it a horror? Is it this or that? Yeah, I don't think she thought there was any horror elements in this, and I'm like, no, you're stretching it because you got a mad scientist. Mad scientist takes it out of, of the realm of normal films normally, it dips its toes in the horror you know, pool, but that's about, I think that all of it it does in this one, because then you don't really get any suspense, and there's no creepy, super creepy elements before Una Merkel pops up again, and there's chuckle, 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 or, you know, the guys are, we're, we're going to save the day, and we're going to get off this island, you know, and it, I don't know, it's you don't get too much of one element before all of a sudden it pulls you out. It's like, Nope, that's this not where we're we're not a horror film, we're a comedy and when when you start laughing too much it's like, ooh, let's put the mad doctor back in. I don't know. It it jumps around a lot. Yeah,
1: and I did like
2: the concept
1: of it and it has sort of an interesting catch that he finds himself in. I mean, like we said in the synopsis, he's claiming to be able to bring the dead back to life, but really all he's doing is putting people to sleep so that he can then revive them. Did you think he he really was sincerely just working towards the goal of bringing the dead back from life, and he just hadn't gotten there because he was experimenting? I think he was legit
2: in what he wanted to accomplish, at least in his mind. And then, of course, begins to realize, I am in over my head, kind of like, you know, you've kind of, you've created this scenario where it's like, all it's going to take is for someone to die, and you can't bring them back before your whole little, you know, I'm going to take over the world, you're not going to get to that point because, you know, you're going to be on the dinner plate. So, I don't know. I think, yes, in his mind he had this vision. He just didn't have the tools to back it up.
1: Yeah, and so then, of course, he is put in the situation where he's got to bring someone up or his gig will be up. And, you know, that's what happens. So, that, that was kind of clever. The more and more we talk about it, I don't think there was really we say it's a comedy i don't think there were we didn't call murders in the zoo a comedy at all i kind of think of this the same way but the more i'm thinking about it is is just the whole thing like a really really dry comedy because to think he becomes a god to this tribe because they think he brought people up he can manipulate them to do whatever he wants and then he wants to marry the woman. I mean, it's just really, really ridiculous.
2: It, yeah, I don't disagree with you there. Yeah, it, 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 it is kind of all over the place. And
0: I
1: didn't regard. hate it. I mean, it's okay. I don't think he overacts. He's not out of place, but Lionel Atwell definitely, it's one of his most extroverted performances. I mean, the camera zooms in on his face. His eyes like, literally like are going to bug out of his head, it looks like. Maybe this is more of a, a spoof or a parody of Mad Scientist movies.
2: I don't think it was intended to be. Yeah. Kind of hard to say. I mean, there's a lot
1: more that are going to come after it.
2: So, I mean, it was written by Al Martin. He wrote tons of short subjects. And when you look at some of the films that he did, I mean, he did The Shadow Strikes in 1937, which is The Shadow. Of course, you know, who knows, you know, what lurks in the hearts of men. The Shadow knows. I love The Shadow. But the movies from the 30s and 40s were marginal. They didn't quite capture the feel of the pulp novels or the radio programs, which were very, kind of two different versions of The Shadow. I think probably the best adaptation around this time is the, is the the chapter serial, so The Shadow Strikes isn't horrible, but it's kind of forgettable in some regards. The Invisible Ghost with Bela Lugosi, one of his lesser films. I mean, I think The Invisible Ghost is good from what I recall. I love that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but again, that was Poverty Row, so not A-list material. He wrote episodes of My Favorite Martian towards the end of his career. Not a stellar career. And honestly, director Joseph Lewis, not a stellar career. He did lots of westerns, lots of forgettable westerns. He did direct Invisible Ghost. He also did Gun Crazy, which is kind of a well-known flick of the day. I don't know. When you look at the cast, too... You know, aside from Una Merkel and Lionel Atwell, I mean, you've got some people that, not necessarily A-list. I'm not sure B-list would be a stretch. Nate Pendleton plays Red Hogan. He did some, I mean, like, appearances in, like, The Thin Man and Another Thin Man, Buck Privates and Buck Privates Go Home with Abbott Costello. Uh, A film called On Borrowed Time, which is really good, about a guy who, who, if I'm trying to remember this one, this is Lionel Barrymore, and he... He somehow tricks and captures death in a tree, and because death gets caught in a tree, people don't die anymore. I think, if I remember correctly, I think he's dying, or somebody he knows is dying, and he wants to try to keep them alive. It's a good flick.
1: It sounds I, like Death Takes a Vacation.
2: Uh, or maybe. Death Takes a holiday. You know, I saw that film years ago. Randomly, and I loved it. I've got it. I need to revisit that because I don't quite remember it. I just, I love Lionel Barrymore. I love seeing him in roles other than an old man Potter because there's just a certain charm to that old curmudgeon. In any case, he was, Nate Pendleton was in Scared to Death, 1947, with Bela Lugosi. You have Claire Dodd, who played Patricia Wentworth. A few films of the day that that are kind of genre-related. The Black Cat from 41. Charlie Chan in Honolulu, <laughs> the Secret of the Chateau, And then you've got Richard Davies, who played the character of Jim, the kind of pseudo hero of the piece. And here's what he said about Lionel Atwill. Back in 1988, he didn't remember much about working with Lionel Atwill. He was the star of the picture, and we just had a speaking acquaintance. He was a good enough actor so that his personal problems did not affect his performance. In my opinion, the picture was not as good as the picture I made with Fred Astaire called The Sky is the Limit in 1943 for RKO. He just very quickly sidesteps it. The authors of the book added, The late Mr. Davies had a persuasive gift for understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Now this is an interesting thing, though. This movie got double billed in neighborhood theaters with The Wolfman. What an interesting, odd pairing that is. For those of you who know, a lot of times films when they would get done with the the big theater in town, right? They would go to the neighborhood, the smaller neighborhood theaters, you know. Which I don't, we really don't have anything to compare to that now. The small little theaters that were sometimes like smaller towns, a part of a bigger city. I think possibly in here, in I I live in a suburb of Kansas City that has a theater called the Aztec Theater, and they're doing a remodel and they're going to reopen it. They're going to show films there. They're, they're also going to have events and such. I'm interested. I've been seeing some pictures. The building is still intact. There's nothing on the inside that really existed. I think the ticket booth is still outside, but beyond that, they've done kind of a clean... It's, it's going to be a gut job, and, and so I wouldn't call it a historical theater, but it's an old theater that they're redoing, it's going to be an entirely fresh. That was kind of a neighborhood theater, a small little... Hole in the Wall Theater. You know, at one point, the mad doctor and the wolf man mm. shared Bill. Kind of crazy. This film, though, it was shot in under three weeks. I think one of the most dramatic scenes of the film is the the fire on the boat. All that was stock footage from the movie uh, Dante's Inferno in 1935. Mm. The most exciting part of the film it wasn't really even filmed. Uh, it was just that stock footage. You know, of the three films... I will gladly watch Secret of the Blue Room again. I will gladly watch Murders in the Zoo again. I probably wouldn't seek out the Mad Doctor of Market Street. Maybe somewhere down the road I'll revisit it again and then 20 years down the road, I'll forget it by that point. Maybe I'll revisit it and maybe I'll find something in it that I, I didn't see this time, much like Secret of the Blue Room. I love that one substantially more than I did the first time. Mad Doctor, my impression this time around was Comparable to what I had the first, I'm probably not going to remember a lot about it, you know, six months down the road.
1: And I'll watch it again just because I want to see if I have the same reaction I did to Murders in the Zoo, where it grew on me and I liked it better.
2: I, I mean, that's time. a good point. I mean, it, c- it could be a film that grows on you. I think that this, considering how this film has just been kind of buried and you don't really hear a lot of people talk about this one or like the strange case of Dr. RX. I, that probably says a lot.
1: Anything else to say
2: about it? That's all I have on the Mad Doctor Market Street, uh, other than, I think we've already said it's out on the Universal Horror Collection Volume 2. You said you had a, a comment about those collections, I think. Yeah,
1: and we'll, still, more to come. That's More to come, good, okay. Because yeah. there's another set coming out, so you know we'll address that uh, in new business. Back to Lionel. So it's October 15th, 1942. Lionel Atwell was prosecuted for perjury. There are apparently articles out there. There's a particular book that was referenced many times. I think Hollywood Babylon or something. Yes. Where yeah. there is, you know, there's a lot of rumors about what really happened. Lionel Atwell did not do anything to anybody. No. He may have shown some slightly risque films, but he did not show pornography. All this man did was lie. And he did it to protect his friends. so it, from a certain perspective, it could be, you know, sort of a heroic act we'll, we'll come back to that in a second but he he did go to court because his name kept coming up he lied on the stand and was caught but again i just want to repeat he was not involved at all in what happened and that's what's kind of sad about this
2: now I mean essentially he has a party something happened at the party when he was asked about it he and the reason he lied was to protect the people at his party and he also had some visiting guests from outside of town i believe is what i read that he didn't he just didn't want to embarrass anybody involved so he chose to to not reveal anything he chose to lie and then later admitted that yeah that's he did that and this is the reason why he did it yeah.
1: there was a thought that he at this time he then claimed to be a victim of blackmail and remember he what a lavish lifestyle he had that sort of made sense but then they never really returned to that i don't know if that uh, ever really became a thing or not. So, the woman that was charged was sentenced to a year, and uh, you know, the whole story became that this girl had been mistreated at several Lionel Atwill parties. But you know what? Even the victim denied that he was involved at any point. So, it's just a bizarre situation. Like I said, he was prosecuted. It's still not over yet. So he's still making movies. In 1942, he was making movies. The quality was definitely declining. He did play Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon. But then in the middle of 1942, his trial came. And again, he testified that he was not involved. There were no immoral motion pictures shown at his parties. But, you know, he was being prosecuted for perjury. He said he was not guilty. However... He asked to change the verdict, I guess his conscience got to him, and he admitted, there's a famous quote that is attributed in most cases apparently to him, he said, I lied like a gentleman to protect my friends. He never said that, it was attorney, his attorney that said that. He got uh, sentenced for five years of probation, and uh, this was sort of his fall from grace, The Hayes office, which we mentioned earlier, they ordered the studios not to hire him because he was a convicted felon. That meant no work for him and no money. Three days before this sentence, he had started filming Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Universal, very considerate of them, I guess. They didn't fire him. They let him continue his work. However, it should be noted, it was a very small part. He had only a very few lines in that film. What do you do when you can't make movies? You're kind of outcast. He go back to the theater. At this time, though, he was 58 years old. He, he never made it back to Broadway. He returned to the West Coast then, and only poverty, poverty Row would have him at that time. But he did go to Universal one more time for House of Frankenstein, again, a very smaller role than even in uh, the previous one. At age 59, he married a 27-year-old, and then in 1945, he became a father again. Sadly, he only lived not even to see the child become a year old because he died of pneumonia at the age of 61. Now, he had lung cancer, but the cause of death is officially listed as pneumonia. Probably a side effect of the the lung cancer. I do have one more quote I want to read. It kind of sums up this whole trial Uh, Period, And it kind of explains what happened. I know I went through it really fast and there was a lot of nuance to it. In April 1943, he decided something had to be done and he spoke to his attorneys. On April 16th, he submitted a plea to the court asking that his sentence be terminated on the basis that the stigma surrounding it was preventing him from finding employment. His attorney also cited that Atwill had suffered abject humiliation and felt the ends of justice justice have already been accomplished. Furthermore, Atwill's probation officers informed the judge that Atwill's conduct had been exemplary while he was on probation. In other words, there had been no more wild parties. His conviction was thrown out.
2: It's sad that he he ended up in Poverty Row films. I mean, it's nice that he had kind of the final universal swan song. Unfortunately, you know, his last couple of films, he had finished up work on a film called Genius at Work in 1946 with Bela Lugosi. It was a comedy essentially with characters of, uh, or the actors Wally Brown and Alan Carney. They were RKO's low rent Abbott and Costello wannabes. And they weren't that funny. They were okay, but they weren't Abbott and Costello. That movie actually, I think, was the last one released. And he did seven films with Bela Lugosi, so that's kind of interesting. He was working on The Lost City of the Jungle when he died, and, and the devil had to finish the few scenes that he hadn't that, I guess, got released before just, or Genius at Work. Nonetheless, kind of, you hate to see that, you know, someone who had had done much better films to kind of, you know, have his last few films just be really not that great. Have you ever seen Genius at Work? Mm-mm. Uh, I, I think of, like, it, you know, is often kind of, at the same time, uh, Lugosi, not... At the same time, but, you know, it, it gets kind of compared to uh, Zombies on Broadway, which was about the same time, and then Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, because all three of them have comedic elements to it. And I think that Wally Brown and, and Carney are, are in Zombies on Broadway, too, I think. The Zombies on Broadway has got, it, it's got a blackface routine that kind of, it, it sneaks up, and when it happens, you're like, oh, this is, you can't, it, that's, it really pulls you out of the moment, Neither one of those films are great. Genius at Work, I'm trying to think if it got released on, on DVD or, or not. No, it did. I don't think it's been given an official release. Zombies on Broadway, I believe, was on a Karloff and Lugosi set. Genius at Work, if it's out there, it's maybe a vault collection or something like that. Or maybe it's part of another box set. It's not that great. Kind of sad that his career kind of ended on, on such a down note like that. From a... A legal standpoint, I mean, it got thrown out, right? But the damage was done at that point. He had been blacklisted and he never really, aside from Universal giving the work, he didn't have a chance to kind of have his comeback, really. Uh, at least he was able to get work at, in Poverty Row. And, you know, Poverty Row put out some decent films. I, I you know, Poverty Row, yeah. I mean, they do some good work with what little they had there can be entertainment definitely in poverty row films it's just you kind of know what you're getting with those you're, you're not getting the best of the best uh it doesn't mean you're not getting a good film it just means you're not getting a universal horror quality film anything else about no, lionel atwell I, no i think this was interesting I, I had a lot of fun with this one um you know it's always interesting to do these where you we take a look at the careers and, but especially with somebody like lionel atwill who ...isn't necessarily someone that gets talked a lot about. You talk about him in reference to his supporting roles, but I think to say, let's just talk about his career or his life and to take a look at some different films from different aspects of his career. So I had a lot of fun with this one. And I, I you know what? Dive into to Lionel Atwell. I think the book sounds amazing. I think it's kind of fun to, to get these lesser-known biographies out there. I'm reading one on Douglas Fairbanks right now that, of course, is very well-known but it's interesting because the the person who is writing the book she's a collector and she's a film historian but a lot of what she is is using in this book she gets if anyone knows about douglas fairbanks side tangent here a little bit but he was married to mary pickford and they were like the first royal couple of hollywood well she got possession of and i don't i think it was through her you know being a film historian she was able to acquire the love letters from Douglas Fairbanks to Mary Pickford that was found in Mary Pickford's possessions when she died, and the letters predate their marriage, so they were having a little scandalous affair on the side. It gives insight, because Douglas Fairbanks is a guy who was was known for, for tall tales, and so you never knew exactly which version of his background was accurate, even in the in the story so far you know, and I'm still in the early part of the book it's interesting because it's like some autobiographies or some biographies have said he did this and this and this but then some of the letters that she's reading are saying this and this and this and then he's like well which version is true and so some of it you've got to present he might have done this he might have done this we don't know I, I just find it interesting when we, we look at some of these stars you know everyone knows about Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney I, I like learning some of this maybe lesser known Hollywood history and I I had a lot of fun with this one yeah me too
1: me too okay let's take one more break and we'll come back and wrap things up with new business
2: it's on its way towards where yes right away fantastic there's a huge monster gorilla that's constantly growing to outlandish proportions loose in the streets he's moving towards the embankment area yes sir Contact all available patrol cars, have them come into headquarters, and equip them with arms immediately. Get my car ready. I'll be right down to issue further orders. Yes, sir. Call Commissioner Garland at his home, notify him of the emergency. Then call the war office, tell them what's happening, and request them rush some armed troops to the embankment area. I'll give them the position on radio telephone. Right, sir. Get me Commissioner Garland's home right away.
1: Welcome back to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. We're going to run through now some home video releases coming out in March. Not a whole lot in March. In fact, a a couple pretty decent 80s releases, but I'm not going to take the time to mention those here. I'll I'll get back to 70s and earlier. March 10th from Shout Factory is the movie Bug from 1975. Uh, There's another movie called Bug that is years later. This is not that movie. This is the one about the cockroaches that uh, can start fire. (laughs) On the 17th, what we've mentioned several times is the Universal Horror Collection Volume 4 is coming out. And we're getting deeper and deeper. And we're getting to the point where Jeff is trying to decide, does he want to continue adding to the set? We have Night Key from 1937 with Boris Karloff. I like that movie a lot.
2: That's a fun film. It came
1: in that... Non
2: horror period, so that's uh, it's got Boris Karloff. Night
1: Monster from 1942, Lionel Atwill and Bella Lugosi. The Climax 1944 with Boris Karloff. And House of Horrors from 1946 with Rondo Hatton. That set, of course, is from Shout Factory. I'm kind of interested in the one that's going to come after this because how much deeper are we going to go? But perhaps we'll see Secret of the Blue Room. It's not out of the uh, imagination
2: no it's not i mean they, they've already proven that they're kind of doing some deep dives you know i'm looking at my shelf here It's like dark streets of cairo is a is a mystery adventure film with george zucco that is just never surfaced anywhere there's still some fun stuff out there I, I wish they would kind of keep digging a little bit yeah the jungle woman movies yeah but Let, let's let's get those on on a proper set those are kind of fun quirky films I don't know if we could fill a whole show about those, but that might be
1: kind of fun. Yeah, I bet we could. March 24th from Arrow, we have Beyond the Door from 1974 with Juliet Mills. I believe that's a sort of another spin on The Exorcist. Uh, and that's uh, maybe Italian. I know it's foreign and Beyond the Door was the American release date. Uh, Juliet Mills would have been the obligatory American star also on the 24th, Frankenstein the True Story, from 1973. We devoted a whole episode to that with our friend Sam Irvin. That's coming out on Blu-ray. I debated this. I bought the DVD. I have it. I watched it when we did the episode. That's what I watched it from. But I'm thinking of upgrading, and the, re- the reason is not really a, a legit reason. It's not that I love the Mark Maddox cover of the Blu-ray, I do, but it's more that I dislike the DVD cover. It's just not very attractive. It looks sort of like a, uh, the cover of a leather-bound book, but then they have a picture in the middle. Uh, just not the best reason to upgrade, but it's a reason, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, upgrading is, oh, gosh, you know, there's so much stuff coming out. And I, I've reached a point where I've, I've just got to make a judgment call. It's like, for me, if I have it on DVD and I'm happy with what I got, I, I'm typically not going to upgrade anymore. Because so many of these older movies especially, generally speaking, they look good already. May might look a little bit better. But I don't know. I, it's kind of like... I've got X amount of dollars. Do I want to buy something I've never seen before or now don't have in my collection? or do I want to buy a film that I've already had on DVD or VHS? I don't know. I, I, I kind of that's my mindset with with automatically upgrading anymore.. Yeah.
1: And then the final release I have noted is March 24th from Kino Lorber Studio Classics. a movie called Endless Night from 1972 and that has Haley Mills. not familiar with it. Of the genre so uh, if anyone likes that movie well it's coming out on blu-ray for you and uh, if you don't and think it sounds good enough to do a blind buy uh, you can
2: do it you know we're talking about we talked a little bit about supernatural and so I've been sitting here trying to figure out and it does look like just a few weeks ago Kino Lorber announced that they are doing supernatural so that's probably where you saw that and and it does have uh, an awesome cover I don't think they've released the date yet. Doesn't look like they have. But new audio commentary by Tim Lucas. Ooh,
0: that'll um, be good.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not a big commentary person, but I Tim Lucas is he's just uh he's a walking library of knowledge. So, he's one of the people that just knows so much and so and it's a new 2K master of the film. Yeah, that that's kind of intriguing. It's i love the cover. That's um, hopefully that movie and see that will be one i'll get because i've got it on vhs and i did just hook up (laughs) my whole vhs dvd recorder because i've got some vhs tapes that i i kind of want to watch i've got some fu manchu and stuff and i just don't want to buy the dvds but that one would be one that i would upgrade march birthdays
1: richard on march 1st 1885 lionel atwill was born
0: <laughs>
2: I've never heard of
1: this place. Yes. Uh, and then just a couple others Jonathan Scott Taylor was born March 6, 1962 he was Damien in Damien Omen 2 which we have covered on this podcast and then one for me, one for you for me, March eleventh, 1921 is Sam Hall the great writer from Dark Shadows and for you, March twenty-fifth, 1920 Patrick Troughton yes. also from the Omen series but Probably not what he's known for.
2: You know what? So that's our Doctor Who reference. It took us a while to get to it. We got Doctor Who and Star Trek in, barely.
1: March anniversaries, movies that were released in the month of March. There were a lot of horror movies released over the years in March. Some of the highlights, and I'm not going to do dates, I'm just going to do years. In 1975, Trilogy of Terror first aired. Uh, 42, Ghost of Frankenstein with Lionel Atwill. 41 man-made monster with lionel atwill march 31st 1933 i don't know if we really noted that but murders in the zoo with yeah. lionel atwill so those very appropriate for today's episode our old favorite we love to play the trailer every now and then conga came out in march of 1961 march of 67 the x from outer space I mention that because I fairly recently wrote about that on my blog, and um, it's a fun, funny movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it just kills me that the, the poor bird in the giant clog gets so much hate, and yet <laughs> no one talks about the extra outer space. That's a goofy monster. And then finally, as I stare at the Robbie the Robot, uh, robot figure toy that Richard got at Walmart. Forbidden Planet came out March 23,
2: 1956. Are we gonna hear him talk? We are gonna hear him talk.
1: Alright.
2: So... Okay, well not talk. <laughs> I'm gonna push the button again. Welcome to Al gentlemen.
0: I am to transport you to the residence. He says three yeah. things. For your <laughs> I am to respond to the name <laughs>
1: There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's a really cool thing uh, for only 20 bucks. Very detailed and uh, looks really good up on your Forbidden Planet shelf. That's it for new business. Richard, tell us what is going on with your creative projects these days.
2: It's a little hard. We're doing a month in advance, so... I'll say that I'm still doing stuff for Dread Media and uh, the uh, monthly Memberverse audio cast. I'm going to probably do a Lionel Atwell film for the Memberverse audio cast. So that may even be out before this episode airs, but that's to kind of help tie everything in. I think I'll do that.
1: Little, There's some of that self-promotion.
2: Exactly. And uh, I'm also going to be covering some other Lionel Atwell films for the blog. Uh, I thought it would be fun to kind of tie everything in a little bit. So, I don't know that all of these will be covered, but these are the ones that are on my list. And so, we'll see how the month goes. But The Sphinx that we talked about earlier, Mark of the Vampire, 1935, which I don't think... Did we mention that? I don't know.
1: I feel like we talked about the end of that.
2: Okay, anyway. The Gorilla, 1939, with Bela Lugosi. Strange Case of Dr. Rx from 1942. Uh, Night Monster from 1942 with uh, Mr. Lugosi. Fog Island from 1945. And I might even force Carla to sit and watch Genius at Work from 1946. Anyway, those are the ones that I have in my collection or have easy access to. So I figured it would be kind of fun to kind of throw that in. Not necessarily on the blog yet, but getting prepared for. We're doing some Laurel and Hardy stuff. Last summer we did Marx Brothers over at kccinephile.com. This year we're going to be doing Laurel and Hardy. Not horror related, but there's a few spooky things that Laurel and Hardy did. The Laurel and Hardy Murder Case is a is a great short. The Live Ghost is a fun one that they did that actually kind of gets played sometimes around uh, the Halloween season. A Haunting We Will Go is one of the films they did in the 40s. So yeah, some fun stuff. We're So we're... Watching all of the short subjects before we start covering the films, which is what we'll be doing, the feature films, throughout the summer months. May, June, July, August, and September. Which, good lord, that's five months. Kind of what we did with Marx Brothers last year. A little bit longer because there's more films. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. What
0: about you?
1: I'm back uh, going fairly regularly on my blogs on uh, ClassicHorrors.club. i been doing pretty much getting something up on mondays i recently did uh lycanthropus or werewolf uh in a girl's dormitory and enjoyed that movie a lot so i I wrote about that i'm trying to honor a new year's resolution that i have attempted to make for probably three years in a row and this year i have done it so far when i write about a movie i want to do research non-internet research I want to take advantage of my library of, of resources and my magazines and look up things then. So if things are dated, I mean, I'm a concerned maybe about doing false information, but I'm sure that's happened before. So far, I've done that. So I've included some quotes from books or magazines in in the things I've written so far. And I'm going to try to do more of that. I'll, I'll look at IMDb for cast and crew and all that, but uh, really, I want to get stories and quotes from things that are more authentic, maybe? I don't know.
2: I mean, it's fun. I mean, there's so much information that's on the, on the Internet that, again, not all of it can be 100% accurate. There is something about opening up a book. And, I, you know, de- depending on what you're putting on there, it not may not necessarily be dated, because, honestly, some of these books, what they're given is a story that, that hasn't changed just because the book may be out of print or... There may be a website that's got more information. It doesn't mean that that, that information you pulled from the book, like the quotes I did today from Universal Horrors, you know what? The information I pulled uh, specifically on you know, two of the three films, I trust it because this is a Bible more than I would on some sites on the Internet. None of it was dated. It was all factual information. So I think that's cool. Yeah,
1: yeah and... You know, we talked last time, I think, about not being a slave to the obligation of doing it, which you also mentioned in this episode. I don't anticipate publishing something as frequently because, number one, it's going to take longer if I do actually do research on it and uh, I want to make the, the pieces then be more substantial.
2: You know, I think it's something about plugging. We want to do this stuff for fun, and I think kind of not necessarily relying on the Internet as, as much, I think, is really cool. And I'm taking it an interesting step. I really, I haven't even mentioned this until now. I'm actually tuning out of social media one day a week.
0: Whoa! Um,
2: You won't find me on uh, like Facebook or uh, Instagram on Sundays at all. Which is hard because that's the day you have time to be on it. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of truth to that, but. You know, Sunday Night Musical is like, I want to, you know, throw up a poster. I'm like, like last week we watched Robin and the Seven Hoods. But I thought, no, I got to stick to it. You know, I I, want to do, I think I did like on Martin Luther King Day, which was Monday. So like I was on Sunday, but then I took Monday off. I just decided it was important for me to, to tune out one day a week. I just, I try to make note of if there's a birthday coming up on that day, I'll I'll wish them either happy birthday before or make sure I go back in the day after. I'm not tooting my own horn. It's just, it's something I wanted to do. Honestly, I'm kind of enjoying it because it's just like, I'm not tied into that. And I'm finding that I, I you know, not being tied in, you know what? The world continues to spin and the sun or the clouds as we've had mm-hmm. here are still up in the sky it's allowing me more time to, to do some stuff on Sundays, whether it's listening to music or watching a movie or reading a book because Sundays have become kind of our day in most weeks, that that's our day that we're definitely don't want to do anything on Sundays. It's like that's the one day of the week that we're just here together been important to us. So not going to happen tomorrow, you know, Super Bowl Sunday as we're recording this. You're listening to this in the future, so you know if the Chiefs won or not. Yeah, so you we know don't. you
1: know Monday morning if. Uh, well, Richard probably doesn't care, but I'm somewhat invested in it, so you'll know. You know now whether I was happy Monday morning or not.
2: I'm not a. You know, I, I'm not a big sports guy, uh, but uh, that said, I'm interested in the game. We're going to be at a party and will be coming home at halftime, mostly because I don't want to be driving the 45 minutes at 9 o'clock at night. That said, I do. I want to see them win. I guess that's huge for Kansas City, especially coming on the heels of the Royals winning a few years ago. Hopefully the Chiefs don't go down the path that the Royals did and kind of, you know, they kind of tanked a little bit in the last couple of seasons. They've struggled. I want to see the Chiefs win. I think that would be huge for us to have two big wins like that within, you know, The same decade. I think that's huge for Kansas City and I want to see that happen. You know, that said, all of this is 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 old news for the people listening to this. Nonetheless. Yeah. That was I just I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that that's I'm tuning out on Sundays and I'm kind of like doing the same thing. It's like I've got all this wealth of knowledge and I'm like I wanna be there's the stuff I haven't read and I wanna be reading some of this stuff. Exactly. You get trapped into that this video and that video and this site and that site, I've got a library of stuff. I, I want to take advantage of it. So I, that's really interesting. That well, you let's hold each other thinking. accountable for that. I think so. I think so. If you see me online <laughs> on a Sunday, it's like, what are you doing? Because I'll admit that that Sunday that I was on before Martin Luther King Day, I I was on and I didn't even realize it was Sunday. My mindset was thinking oh, I'm still off tomorrow. And Carla's like, what are you doing? You know, it's like midway through the day. And I'm like, oh, no. And she says, well, just don't get on tomorrow. And I said, done. And I didn't. And you know what? I didn't miss it.
1: Well, since you gave me my birthday card early, I will not be offended if you do not wish me happy birthday on Facebook when my birthday is on Sunday.
2: You'll get an early birthday wish. Okay. So, good. Good. Uh, and
1: the second thing I want to say about that is I think the tides are going to turn. I read an article, re, me reading an article, speaking of social media, is a, a headline on social media. That's how I read news. Bookstores are coming back. They're like having record sales. And I, I think that's fantastic. I think I'm not going to say it's a fad. It's been too it's too deeply ingrained now to be a fad. But I think people are going to go back. I think they're going to want to simplify
2: there's obviously we're living in a, in, a, in a time where there's just there, there is a, a part of our art society that is strictly digital. They don't want books, right? They want to just and yeah, it's very cool to have this 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 pad in your hand that you have access to all these books and stuff. I, I guess you know in, in some ways, I guess we're part of that old generation where I like just to have the book in my hand. and you know what? nobody can take this away from me and it's not going to disappear. Unless, you know, something horrible happens or I choose to let go of it. And that's the advantage. I I hear and see people complaining about things disappearing from physical media. Somebody posted Babylon 5 is leaving Amazon. You know, I was like, I was thinking, well, you know what? I still have all of mine (laughs) on DVD. Digital is great. It's great having that stuff out there. There is something about having something tangible in your hands. I know Christopher Mim has been on this big digital kick because... He's not having the sales that he used to. I think that there is still life out there for physical media, depending on what you have and the audience that's out there. And for me, I'm always, as long as they're continuing to make DVDs and Blu rays, I'm still going to be out there getting them and I'm still going to be getting books and I'm still going to be adding to my collection. Yes, it takes up rooms. You know, you got to, if I ever leave this house, I'm going to have to seriously think, well, we can't just live in a one-bedroom house because we need a room for all of, all of the, the DVDs. There is something about knowing that I can walk over to this shelf, I, I can pick up a movie, or I can go to my binders and get something, because sometimes, you know, stuff is out there and it disappears. I think, you know, Vinyl Records supposedly outsold CDs last year. CDs are, are pretty much dead because everything's gone digital, and vinyl is never going to outsell digital. But people kind of came back and realized that vinyl had a richer sound than than CD. I mean, the price on vinyl records is crazy, so it's not a surprise that they're outselling. <laughs> Things do kind of come full circle sometimes, you know. People laugh at us now, but in five years, you know, we will be kings with our with our libraries. So you reminded me; I did
1: not order the Memiverse trading card set. I hope it's not too late for me to do that.
2: Uh, it did was you? still there when I ordered it this morning. So. Oh, good,
1: good, good, good back to what i'm doing but i am doing a little bit a uh, hastier job with the the friday uh, tv terror guide i'm still going through Colchak the night stalker and i think i'm about halfway through now so more episodes every friday one of those and then over at dc comics guy i am uh, talking about wonder woman from the 60s when she voluntarily gave up her powers and that's a lot of fun i'm, I'm really enjoying the heck out of that because yeah, that's something
2: i've I've only been familiar with because I've been with you as you've been finding those I've never read any of those and so I'm loving that yeah
1: and uh, we're in the stage now where it's getting very James Bondy and uh, so it's it's kind of fun
2: so that's that's what I'm up to what are we doing next time well next month this one is for Carla April is her birthday month and she constantly gives me grief that when she joined the Facebook page <laughs> we didn't welcome her She was, I think, one of the very first, and we weren't welcoming people yet. Nonetheless, I I told her, I said, well, what, you know, what about if we did a month where you kind of pick the theme? And she picked a pretty darn good one. She loves Sherlock Holmes. While Sherlock Holmes is is mostly mystery, they did dabble in some things that were, you know, horror or, you know, well, I mean, in some cases, definitely horror. uh, Or, you know, definitely horror mystery. So we're going to pick three films from kind of three different eras There's so many actors and so many different versions and adaptations. I think we're going to do three fun ones. So next month we're going to do The House of Fear from 1945. So we're going to get to see the great Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Then, of course, we're going to jump to 1959's Hammer version of The Hound of the Baskervilles with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And then a, a smaller leap to 1965 and A Study in Terror, where Sherlock Holmes goes toe-to-toe with Jack the Ripper. So it's going to be a fun Sherlock Holmes month next month. I think even beyond that, we've got some fun stuff we're talking about. So hang in there. We've got uh, some fun stuff coming up. It's going to be a fun summer. Yes. That's, I'm going to tease you with that. we got a, a fun theme coming up this summer that's going to going to take us into some territory we haven't gone before. And I'll
0: leave it at that.
1: We will wrap up then. Call the meeting to a close with a quick reminder of our phone line. If you'd like to give us a call, 616-649-CLUB. And with the regular plea for you to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate that. I believe that's it. So we're going to close with a song. It's called Mad Doctor in honor of Lionel Atwill. It's by Alexander Krimertz from the 2017 album Technolicious number 23. (laughs) And it's available on Apple Music. Richard, let's dance our way out of here. Goodbye, everybody. Take care.